In a game of tactics, it was Marc Marquez who came up with the ultimate checkmate at Bruno. Welcome to Bite Life. Let's go! Yes, it's a warm welcome to episode 25, the silver edition of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on a bumper weekend of motorcycle racing last weekend, both at home and abroad. We look back on the Czech Grand Prix as MotoGP made a spectacular return after the summer break, as did Marc Marquez, who produced another masterclass in flag-to-flag conditions to win the Czech Republic Grand Prix and extend his championship lead. We will look at how he did it and how Repsol Honda secured a 1-2 thanks to Danny Pedrosa. We'll also talk about how Movistar Yamaha got it spectacularly wrong, yet still salvaged a 3-4, uh, and some of the other standout performances from the likes of Paul Espargaro, who gave KTM their first top 10, and Jonas Folger, who finished top 10 despite pitting twice in an incredible Grand Prix. We'll also look at the Moto2 race, as Thomas Lutie produced an unlikely victory, if a Thomas Lutie win can ever be described as unlikely. And we will look at the Moto3 race, which went completely to the form book, even if the weather did everything to try and make sure that it didn't. Um, we will look at the Thruxton round of the British Superbike Championship as one title contender suffered a serious blow physically and in terms of his title hopes. And we will look at the surprise outcome as Josh Brooks and Peter Hickman took their first wins of the season. We'll also look ahead to this weekend as we try and work out which Ducati will win the Austrian Grand Prix this Sunday at the Red Bull Ring. <laughs> um, it's episode 25 and it's a warm welcome once again to Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Hello, indeed. Oh, glad, to, glad to be with you again, as always, for this uh, shining silver edition and walking proof that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed Marquez is king. <laughs> yes, it was an incredible, incredible Grand Prix, and Matt Marquez demonstrating his skill and his bravery um, and his brain power uh, last weekend, uh, hence the title of the show, The Brain of Bruno. Um, let's first of all tell you the different places you can find us, including Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Huge thank you to everyone who came through this week for the mailbag edition uh, of episode 98 of Motorsport 101 uh, for tweeting us over there. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101. On YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.net. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, you can back us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, if you back us at the $5 level, you will earn yourself early access to Bike Live and to Motorsport 101, which, as I mentioned, Dre, was a mailbag special this week for episode 98. It was indeed, yep. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the Halo and a lot about the World Athletics Championships, to be honest with you, on this one, because let's be real here, there wasn't an awful lot to talk about in the World of Motorsport this past week. Um, so we managed to squeeze it out. I mean, you guys seem to like the last time we talked about track and field. Um, Adam Johnson still has a restraining order, I think, against him after <laughs> his um, vivid pursuit of um, Laura Kenny. God, God bless him. Um, but yes, um, we was, it was indeed mostly a mailbag edition answering your questions. Thanks to everybody that came through for that one. For episode 98 um and yeah if, if you're a, if you're a fan of the world track and field championships going on in london this week um check it out as well there's a lot of talk about that in the first half hour or so um so yeah well they an extended keeping it 101 and a lot of fun mailbag questions so and also we had zoe hamilton back as well which is always fun um Absolutely. So, yes, uh, episode 98, you can check it out right now. Actually, it'll be up by the time this podcast actually finishes recording, let alone the time it actually goes up live. But it'll be out by the time that you're listening to this. So, uh, yeah, check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, huge thank you again to everyone who's sent in questions for the mailbag. Um, there may there may be more where that came from for episode 99. Who knows? Um, oh, no. Oh, no. we got oh. something special for episode 99. You, you, oh, you have no idea. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he's right. I literally have no idea. Um, so, so more on that. Finished. More on that next week um, for episode ninety nine of Most Sport One One. It's worth pointing out, but the, arguably the best bit of episode ninety eight was the bit you haven't heard. Um, but um, we may well bring you that as part of our one hundredth episode <laughs> spectacular um, yes. in a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the great Modern Sport One Hundred One uh, bloopers. Um, which we may well bring you uh, for episode 100 in a couple of weeks. Um, let's switch back to bikes, though, for now and look back on the weekend that was at Bruno and the Czech Republic Grand Prix, um, which demonstrated, Dre, once again, that, um, well, as you phrased it, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed Marquez is king, but in flag-to-flag conditions, um, Matt Marquez is the only one who seems to have a handle on these conditions. Not only the, uh, the skill and bravery required, but the brain power required. No kidding. I mean, I mean, let's let's weigh this up. I think we've had four or five of these flag to flag races now um, since the since since the the rules changed and we've allowed bike changes in the middle of a Grand Prix. And I can't think of one where Mark Marquez hasn't won yet, except maybe Assen, but that was more a case of a red flag being in the middle of it. Yeah, but you, um, you, you could argue he chose not to win that one. He, he could have probably given chase to Miller, but didn't want to. No, like, he's like, like okay, I know Rossi's down. I know Dovey's down. Let me take these 20 points. Let Jack Miller have his glory. And then, you know, I'll take the 20 points for the championship. And you can tell, because Marquez celebrated that like he'd won a Grand Prix. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah, um, says it all really. But again, you're absolutely right. It's, it, we've had four or five of these now over the last few seasons, and Marquez just is the one that seems to shine the most in all these. He just has a better gauge on these conditions than any other rider. Now, to be fair, I think he got away with it a little bit because I think the last minute change, but the soft, wet tire on on the back of his bike was a bad idea because it would it was already gone by the end of the second lap. Yeah, was uh, was that Mark Marquez thinking it was the right time to pit, or did he pit because his rear tire was ruined? The answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, like I said, like I said, like I think I think he got a little bit lucky on that one. But again, the timing was perfect. He came in, yeah, and, own luck. and and again, he was gone. Like Marquez has just got this unbelievable ability of just being able to ride well in tricky conditions he's it's it's become the most probably the most underrated part of marquez's game in the last couple of years is the simple fact that he's just so good at being able to you know ride in tricky conditions it's something that you know we we used to criticize him as a bit of a crasher a couple of years ago but now he's the guy that's not making these sort of errors anymore when tracks are slippery Marcus is the one that seems to, to judge it most. It's a terrifying part of Marcus's game or something. Does this, this man have an actual weakness anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, again, absolutely right. Again, just came in, you know, might have been forced, but hey, the timing was perfect. Didn't matter in the end. Came out in front, um, as Sotheby will mention in a minute, as an absolutely astonishing outlap. And next thing you know, he's in the lead by 22 seconds and the race was effectively over. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Because I, I think back to... I think back to Saxon last year. It was I think it was last year. Yeah, it was last year where he he did the same thing, um, mm-hmm. won by a mile in a flag to follow race, and we we saw him pit on the same lap as Polly Spargo, which happened again this year um, yep. in the Czech Republic Grand Prix. And remember what happened? Mark Marquez went out on the pits and cleared off, and Paul fell off straight away. Yeah, pretty um, much. And, and and this is it. Like Mark Marquez made them all look silly in those conditions because the commentators and all of us watching were saying, justification as we're watching to everybody else, why aren't you pitting? Like, Mark Marquez has come in. Why haven't you followed? Why haven't you done what he's done? But you can almost what you think that. Are these riders actually sat there thinking, well, I can't do what he's doing. Like, I, I'm not right. pitting yet because if I pit now, I can't stay on the road and keep this pace like Mark Marquez is because I'll fall off. 
Yeah, that's the terrifying thing is that we looked at the outlaps in this and Marquez had the fastest outlap of any rider coming out of the pits. And some and the majority of the field came in after he did. Yeah, three or four uh, laps later. Yeah, some of them three or four laps down the road. And by that point, the track was pretty much bone dry anyway. Um, but yeah, Mike Marquez, he came in when the track was still its most slippery, its most treacherous, and he was he had a faster outlap than anybody else. Which, I mean, you're right, it says it all. I mean, again, if, if, a, if a rider like someone like, say, Jorge Lorenzo doesn't have the confidence to be able to ride in those conditions, forget about it. Like, there's no point in coming in, because if you come out, you're going to crash it. As you mentioned, Saxon Ring last season, people forget that Paul Spagaro and Scott Redding came in the same lap as Marquez did. Redding screwed up because he put on the intermediate tyre, Paul Spagaro put the slick on and dropped three corners later. And again, Spagaro would have probably had a very easy... Dropped three corners later first. trying to do what Marquez was doing. Exactly, uh, and he just couldn't do it. Um, he just didn't have that level of skill, or that he just ran out of talent, unfortunately, which Mark Marquez has never really done. He's got unlimited levels of it, um, which is. I mean, we'll talk more in more detail about Valentino Rossi, Andrea Vizioso later on, and John Zarka, who were the last ones to pit. Mm. Um, but I almost sort of sit there thinking, were they just blind to the obvious that they should have come in, or were they sat on their bikes thinking, I don't feel confident enough to try this out on slicks yet? Because I don't think I'll stay on the bike. Um, well, that, yeah. I guess that, the f- that's the sort of question I ask myself. Did they just not feel confident enough to put slicks on? Maybe it's that. I mean, again, who knows what's going for a rider's head when you're, when you're riding a bike in changeable conditions at the best part of 200 clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I don't even know what goes on in their heads. I'm not going to pretend like I do. But what I will say is, is that, remember, Marquez was at the back of the field when he came into the pits because he'd lost that much time on the rear tyre. Nobody could really see what Marquez was doing in the forehand. And remember... Well, you can, the, only, you can only really see when you get his first complete lap in, when he did that 158 on his first complete lap um, yeah, out like, on track, which was a comfortable, fastest lap. It was a good 10 seconds quicker than anyone else was going. Mark Marquez's first complete lap on drives was a 158.9, um, which, again, was the fastest dry, fastest lap of anybody on their first full lap on slicks. Um, and he was, as I say, he was the first one to come in. So that's a full two laps after he's changed his bike because his first lap out of the pits was a 222 which included travelling down the pit lane at 60 60 clicks and yeah it's only until that moment where that 58.9 pops up that people realise how quick he's going and by that point it's too late yeah, he's already made up 10 seconds. He's already made up all the time he lost losing the rear tyre going in and then some. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, again, like Marquez was was pretty much at the back when that when that happened. And that's one thing. That's one way of looking at it. The second thing we're looking at is that, like the leading group of Rossi, Lorenzo, Dovi and Zarco were, were, were the last guys to come in. Everybody was, it was behind them were coming in. So they probably didn't even see the fact that the majority of the field had already changed bikes by the time that, you know, Valentino Rossi, for example, his pit crew put the box sign out and have put the communication through the dashboard, which has been tested out this weekend as well. And once again, Valentino Rossi didn't listen to his team and it's cost him, well, not so much this, this time around because, again, the change was very early, so it didn't hurt them as much as it could have done. But it's not a good sign where Valentino Rossi seemingly has ignored his team again when it comes to these flag-to-flag conditions. Like, maybe he needs to realise that maybe he doesn't know better than the guys of the telemetry. Yeah, Just a thought. When it happens to you for, like, the fourth time, yeah, um, you might, you might want to take notice. But, yeah, the other thing as well on Mark Marquez, and it just, again, emphasises what a great mm. decision it was, is what you also ensure is if, you, if you're the first to come in, 
you take yourself out of traffic. Because one thing I was wondering was, some of these outlaps from other guys that were slower than Marc Marquez, were they slower than Marc Marquez on their outlap because they were in traffic? Um, and that's what Marc Marquez you know, did so well. And by pitting first, he puts himself right out the back. So he's got no one else around him. He's got no traffic to hold him up. So he's got a clear track in front of him. He's got 20 seconds to the guy who's next to last in the yeah. race. And he can just do his own pace, which as it turns out is a lot quicker uh, than anybody else. And I mean, it has to be said that his his pace in, by the time everyone had got up to speed in dry conditions, Mark Marquez wasn't the outright fastest guy out there. But in fairness, he didn't have to be. He was already so far in front that he could just basically cruise it and stroke it home yeah didn't matter by that point again like marcus said himself after the race once he saw his pit board say quote unquote plus 22 he thought i'm just going to control the race and you know he, he was willing to throw away a few seconds to pedrosa it didn't matter by that but pedrosa and volga and the yamahas were quicker by the end of the race but again by that point it didn't matter the race was already won for mark marquez on that one so yeah like i said just didn't matter at all on this one um, it, was, it was over by then. So, hey, you know, again, Marquez was able to comfortably ride home in, in the front. It was basically a glorified test session for him by that point. Um, but, yeah, again, it's just going to be a great big case of what could have been for the guys further down because, yeah, Marquez has, has made them all look foolish again. <laughs> yes, and we don't know how many more of these kind of races we're going to get this season, but it has to be a worry for the rest that Mark Marquez in these conditions is practically unbeatable. Um, in that if we get rain during a, a dry race or he dries out in a wet race, that they're, they're probably not going to be able to keep up um, with Marc Marquez. Um, but also in terms of the championship, I mean, he's not got, by any means, an unassailable advantage. It's still very, very early in the season. But he, he came into the second half of the season with a narrow advantage over Vinales, which is extended to 14. Um, but that's got to be a concern, hasn't it, for the rest, that Marc Marquez is starting, almost seems in a similar way to last year, as if he's starting just to edge clear a little bit. And if you if you listen to what he's saying about the bike, he seems to be getting more comfortable with it as the season goes on, which is which is not a good sign for everybody else involved. And like Valentino Rossi said it himself, it's like, well, let's think about this here for a minute. Like, well, it's like you, you, let's 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 it up like this. It's like Rossi straight up said today that that Mark Marquez is fast everywhere, and that's the problem now is that. Even if he's having a bad day, he'll still finish in the top five. And that is enough right now because everybody is beating each other up in this championship battle right now. There is no truly dominant figure. But in the in the midst of all this, Marquez has had the best run of form of anybody going into the midseason break and now coming back to Bruno. And again, like it's Austria this weekend now. And if Marquez is, is ready, if Marquez could run with the front again and maybe even steal the podium, he'll gladly take that. Go. You know, go going out of Austria where we finished a distant fifth last year and the Honda was nowhere near. So again, if they're anywhere in the mix at all, then they'll be in really, really good shape um going into this. But yeah, as you said, like Marquez, he's becoming the all rounder. He's becoming the guy with no weakness, no real weakness in the field. He's dropped the crashing habits. And again, it makes you wonder what could have been if he kept it upright in Argentina. But um he did this style now where he's been the guy that, you know, he's got this level of speed and he's got this ridiculous level of speed, but at the same time, he's now being able to limit the mistakes and he's, he's got the intelligence now to know when to push and when not to. And he's still finding ways to improve his game. And this is going to be a big problem if this keeps up. Yeah, um, it is. And especially if we get flagged to races. Dre mentioned earlier on that um, we, were, we were looking at the numbers of, of these outlaps that Mark Marquez 
um, and his rivals were putting in, um, just to put it into some sort of perspective for you. Mark Marquez's outlap out of the pit lane on dry tyres was a 2 minutes 22. Um, the other guys that pitted on the same lap as him included Paul Espargaro, whose outlap was a 2.36. 14 seconds slower. Um, Bradley Smith, who came in at the same time, who was almost made a name for riding around on slicks on a wet track at Mizano two years ago, his outlap was a 241, 19 seconds slower um, than Mark Marquez on the same track at the same time on the same tyres, um, which is incredible. Um, that's the kind of confidence and pace Mark Marquez had, which meant that it almost became irrelevant when he'd come in. He was so much quicker on those tyres in those conditions that he would have probably won whenever he came in um, because he was so much stronger um, in those conditions. Um, and like I say, that's what's going to make him so difficult to beat now um, in these conditions. Danny Pedrosa uh, came through to finish second. We had that group of riders early on who changed early, who found themselves in podium positions, the likes of Scott Redding, uh, Alicia Spargro, Carol Abraham, uh, who came in in the early stages. Um, but Danny Pedrosa, by pitting on lap four, uh, Drake just came in early enough that he was the first man to catch the traffic and was rewarded with a second place. Indeed. Um, Pedrosa a bit more conservative than his teammate again, but again, Pedrosa found a way to make it work. Um, and there was a distant second in the end, but his dry speed was fantastic. Um, he was able to beat a lot of the traffic back out in the end, and it all shook out pretty well for him. So, uh, yeah, prop, props to him. He did a really good job there. And, again, that was probably an above-par result for what Pedrosa was going to get going into this one. And, again, Honda, will, I think, will very happily take the one-two finish, given this is a round where they've not gone well around in recent years. And it's, it's the kind of result, it's just the kind of result that... Repsol Honda kind of need Danny Pedrosa to get. That's unless you consider Danny Pedrosa a title contender in his own right, which he's, you know, he's not completely sort out of, of it. He's, he's 31 <laughs> points off the lead, um, and he's only nine points behind Valentino Rossi. So I suppose if you consider Valentino a title contender, you've got to consider Danny one too. Um, but I, I guess the way Mark would see it and the way HRC would privately see it is that if Mark Marquez is winning the race, we could really do with Danny finishing second and taking 20 points that 20-point position away from the likes of Vinales, Davizioso, and Rossi. Something like that, I would say. Yeah, I mean, again, that is the sort of performance where, yeah, if Pedrosa wants to be a contender, he's going to have to beat those dudes more frequently. Yeah, and that's what beat he, Marquez. And Marquez, and that's the big kicking point because Pedrosa hasn't got the, the number of Marquez, has never really had the measure of Marquez head-to-head, and that's always been a problem for him. But... If you can beat three of the other four, then, you know, that's half the battle taken care of, at least. Mm, yeah, it is. Mario Vinales, then, coming through to finish second, um, which puts one piece of trivia for this season to bed. That is the first time this year that Mark Marquez and Maverick Vinales have stood on the same podium um, mm. at any stage this season. A question that they are asked about uh, today, on Thursday, as we record this, in the, post, in the pre-Austrian Grand Prix press conference, um, where they were sort of asked why they've never really had that battle on track and why we've never seen them on the same podium together. <laughs> Um, mm. to which Mark Marquez gave the answer that I would probably have given to that in that because the bikes are so different and they have such different strengths that when one bike is stronger, the other bike just seems relatively nowhere and that we always see them at opposite ends um, of the sort of top six in those kind of conditions, whereas you know, where we've seen Honda really strong at places like Jerez, Yamaha were nowhere uh, and we've seen races where Yamaha were strong at Le Mans and Mugello where Honda were, by comparison, uh, nowhere. Um, but Mario Mignales taking second place. He, again, pitted just in time. He came in on lap four, um, and the same lap as Pedrosa, and came through to finish third, which has to be centric. Given the weekend, the way his weekend was shaping up, didn't look particularly quick on Friday, qualified on the third row, 
That was a bit of a save for Maverick. It was a bit of a save for Maverick. And again, he, he, he beat his teammate as well, which is a valuable thing to do because he's not done that very often lately. That was a very good recovery ride from Maverick Vinales. He got to the front of the queue of, the, of that chasing pack in the, in, after the bike changes. And yeah, Valentino Rossi ran out of time to really, you know, punch home that advantage. So yeah, all in, a pretty good weekend for Maverick Vinales, given, again, he didn't look particularly quick in the dry anywhere, but he's still coming with a third place. He'll take that in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, qualified, uh, I believe it was eighth on the grid, Maverick Vinales. He, he, and I think that's probably the third or fourth race not in a row, but in the last few races, we've seen him a few times on the third row when we've had qualifying sessions take place in the wet, like Assen, where I think he was 10th on the grid. Um, you know, the uh, Saxaringi was sort of 9th, 10th on the grid as well. You know, he's had a few poor qualifying results lately, and we've got circuits coming up, like Silverstone last year, where obviously Maverick was superb, so this might be well considered one of those key results, a bit like the Saxaring was, where on the face of it, 4th didn't seem like a great result there. Um, but the way his weekend had panned out, he pretty much got more points out of that weekend than we thought he would have done, um, the way that weekend was shaping up. Um, and as you say, he beat his teammate, uh, Valentino Rossi, who had qualified second on the grid, um, a qualified performance that surprised many of us um, to see him split the Repsol Hondas in qualifying in the dry, um, given that the Honda looked like they had a stronger package in the dry than Yamaha had. Um, yeah. And as it turns out, remarkably, given how good he so often is in the wet, Valentino Rossi was probably left wishing that race had been dry. Yeah, definitely. The way the way it's going, it's it's very odd how that order sh- order shaken out in the end. But yeah, I can't disagree with that one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and it's incredible. He said after his he he managed to keep a sense of humour and a sense of sarcasm at the end of it, um, where he said in his post race press release with Yamaha, um, we improved a lot from the last flight to flag, and I finished fourth. But I think before the end of my career, we can defeat this flight to flag race situation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is always, always treating it as his great nemesis at the moment in MotoGP. He just cannot get this flag to flag stuff right. No, it's just, it's just happened. It's, it's an unfortunate error on 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 Valley's part on this one. And again, it, I think it could have been an easy second place if he'd mm. picked one lap earlier. Uh, Rossi, I think, probably was the fastest man on track consistently. Um, afterwards, it's it's a it's a real shame that it's not quite worked out on that one, but. Hey, uh, fourth place is not a terrible result. Again, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's not awful. Um, it's a slightly underperforming result from Rossi, and he's lost a bit more ground. But again, I don't think he'll be too upset um, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, he his when he came when he came out of that that bike change, I think he was fourteenth, thirteenth, fourteenth. Um, and I was looking at the tower on down the left-hand side of the screen, looking at the guys ahead of him, thinking... And I remember thinking at that time, I'm thinking... I thought the best Valentino probably could have got from there was sort of 6th or 7th. Looking at the guys ahead of him, I was, I was trying to think... I was thinking of the guys that were ahead of him. The likes of Crutchlow, Davizioso, um, Petrucci, Alicia Spargaro, Vinales. I'm thinking, I'm not sure he'll be able to pass many of these guys, because these are quick guys ahead of him. But his pace on in, on dry tyres was superb, um, and enabled him to get through to 4th. Um, but, but yeah, as you say, his pace on the wet tyres, um, for example, lap four, he was doing a two minutes eight um, in wet conditions, which was as fast as anyone was going on wet. Just so happens that Mark Marquez at the same time was doing a 158. Um, so that was 10 seconds gone. Lap Oops. five, um, Marquez was again doing a 58. Rossi did a 212 as he came in the pits. Um, and there goes 20 seconds. Uh, and Valentino Rossi finished 20.4 seconds behind Mark Marquez. Um, so, yeah, it stands to reason. If he'd pitted the same time as Maverick and Pedroza had done, he would have probably finished second. 
but again, it kind of comes back to that kind of whole point. Did Valentino Rossi just not feel he could have done what Mark Marcus did on dry tyres? It's it's a tricky one. But yeah, as you say, when it happens once, you kind of think, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a mistake. He'll learn from it next time. But we've now seen it at Misano 2015, where granted he was in a championship battle and his title contenders were at the same point of the track. So he felt that it was best to do the same as them. He made the mistake, finished fifth. Saxoming last year, same mistake, finished eighth. This is now three times in three seasons, Dre, that Valentino Rossi has, to all intents and purposes, ballsed it up in a flag to flag race. And again, this is this is seemingly a guy who, granted, he probably does know better than most people in most GP because he's won more than most people. But surely, surely, like, are we just are we naive here to think that when a team tells you to box, you box? Well, that's the thing. It's like. We all know in motorsport that when a guy's got a bit, like motorsport guys in motorsport have big egos, and a lot of them are always going to think that you know their opinion is more important than the teams. And we've seen guys defy team orders all the time. We've seen guys refuse to come in, and again they think they know best. And sometimes they're right, but a lot of the times they're not because at the end of the day, the team's got access to information that you don't have, especially when you're when you're when your un, you know, visor's down in a race condition, just racing the guys in front of you, which is what Rossi was doing at the start of that race. So clearly he didn't jump on the rest of the crowd when when, it, well, when he when he was going when people around him were coming in and Rossi left it late again and like you'd think after Misano and the Saxon ring that you know he would have learned that the, the lesson here is the earlier you go the more you stand to gain and again like Rossi is a smoother rider as anyone is in the field he's a guy that I probably would put, put my life on not to have an accident in those sort of conditions but Again, like this is becoming the story of Rossi again for the second year in a row that in critical moments he's made silly mistakes and this was another one that could have cost him a good handful of points. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where obviously we're not on the bike so we don't know what the thought process was, what he was seeing. Um, like Obviously, all the people, that because he was so far up the front, all the people that were coming to change bikes were doing it behind him so he would not necessarily have seen anyone go up pit lane. Um, but... Yeah, as you say, the team has got information that you don't like. You don't have uh, literally timing screens and sector times on your dashboard. All you have is your own lap times and so on, um, and any messages that the team wants to give you. Um, so he might not necessarily have known how fast Mark was going behind him. As you say, the earlier you pit, the more you stand to gain because you know anyone could have sat there and seen. Well, it's not going to rain again, so the track is only going to get drier the longer this race goes on. So if I go on to slicks a lap too early, I'm not going to have to come in and change back again. I'm just going to have to wait for these tyres to come in. Um, right. And then you're up to speed. So even if he'd come in too early, like Valentino Rossi was asked today, um, again, in the press conference in Austria, he was asked, in hindsight, could you have started on slicks um, and not had to change at all? And he said, yeah, in hindsight, if I'd started on slicks, I would have won the race. Um, yeah. Because the track was ready and I wouldn't have had to give up 30 seconds in the pit lane. Um, but that's very easy to say in hindsight and you know again it's a lesson learned but whether he'll learn that lesson and apply it next time remains to be seen um his team boss Mario, massimo marigali said afterwards in the press release um, flag to flag reaches are by nature uncertain and a gamble maverick came in a lap earlier than valet um which has been slightly um slightly dig- diplomatic because it was actually two laps earlier um but he said that in the heat of the moment this is always a difficult decision to make for both the team and the riders especially if you're leading the race 
um, which is basically his way of trying to throw his rider a bone, really, and not throw him under the bus. Um, basically saying that when you're leading the race, it's a more difficult decision because you don't want to give up the lead of the race. But he was right. giving up the lead of it. Anyway, um, Valentino Rossi in the end finished fourth. So as Dre mentioned, he probably did not lose all that much. He lost at most two positions, um, which, oh, right. is, which is yeah. seven points. Um, but he might well regret missing out on those seven points when the season comes to its conclusion because it might well end up being that close um, at the end of the season. Um, as I mentioned, he did a great job to come through in the end and he did so at the expense of Cal Crutchlow, who finished in fifth position. Um, which was a solid result for Cal, not quite on the uh, same level of his performance last year when he won the Grand Prix, um, but in its own way a triumph for Cal Crutchlow Dre, given the um, injury hit start that he had to the weekend. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to break out of the hospital wing to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, an interesting mini-story of the weekend to come through, Cal Crutchlow, seemingly ignoring doctor's advice. And well, getting we back saw on. The, we saw the TV pictures, didn't we, in the pit lane of him striding to his bike, and you almost saw these technical, these sort of safety delegate almost like trying to shout over to him, saying, "No, I don't think you're safe to go." And Cal just thought, <laughs> "Sorry, I'm riding anyway." Um, yeah, like we've mentioned this with um, with Dino Petrucci last year, the the general factor of like, are we sure this is a good idea? Um, like. You know, like these doctors seemingly know best, but I mean, yeah. Granted, this wasn't a head injury, but no, it wasn't a head injury. In fairness, but if the medical guys are telling you not to ride, and the delegate clearly was telling him not to ride, we saw it. We saw the pictures. Um, but yeah, Crutchlow is going out there and riding anyway. We're going to get one of these incidents one day where somebody crashes um, while ignoring medical advice, and, yeah, and who's liable then? Is the rider liable? Is the Adorna liable for not giving him? Because I think the, 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 the issue was that Cal Crutchlow had gone to hospital after that crash in practice three and essentially came back to the circuit without actually getting the checkup that he'd gone there for. Um, because he basically yeah. essentially thought, sod it, I want to go back and I'm riding qualifying. Um, so he didn't get the checkup. And I think that was the, the issue. The the safety delegate who was from Race Direction, from Clinica um, Mobile, whoever it was, wherever it was from, was essentially saying, I don't think I don't want this rider going out on track because he hasn't had the checkup yet. Um, and Cal Crutchlow, as I say, was clearly of the mind of, well, tough luck, I'm riding anyway. Um, but as I say, Dre, that that's the big fear. If Cal Crutchlow had gone out there and crashed again and hurt his back again, and you know we don't want to be too dramatic, but let's say he picked up the kind of injury that Luke Mossy picked up last weekend, or was um, you know we next time we saw him he was in a wheelchair because he, he couldn't walk because he'd hurt his back. Who's liable there? Is the rider liable? Team liable? Are Dorna liable? Are the hospital liable? We don't like who. Who? Where does the buck stop here? Yeah, where's the where's where's the legislation for something like that? So if a rider ignores medical advice and rides anyway, and then he has a severe accident or a follow-up accident that maybe puts him out of a round or two or worse, then who knows? It's like, well, like who are you meant to point the finger at and say, well, who like who was responsible to say? Who made the final call to let Crutchlow ride the bike? And then and, and that's that's probably where the buck stops, but like it shouldn't have you shouldn't get to that point in the first place yeah, if you ask how, me. How do you stop a rider from riding if he's basically gonna ignore you anyway? It's like it's like team orders. It's like he's very well well and good employing team orders, but if the rider's gonna ignore them anyway, it's pointless. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you you've got you we've got to keep a better eye on these medical situations and basically close up these loopholes where guys are getting their checkups effectively ignored and they're still being put out there to ride so 
that's a problem and i hope it gets figured out soon because like we, we you know we, we've had a couple of near misses with this already regarding injury legislation and riders going out while maybe not in the best of health and you know we've, we've been lucky so far we've not had a follow-up injury yet but the way it's going it's going to happen one day and that's going to cause a serious issue mm, and then is. what it is, yeah exactly and then what and we saw um that's very same safety delegate in very um you're remonstrating with Lucio Chacanello in the, in the pits, and yeah, they were, it was pretty clear what the conversation was about. Um, but yeah, as I say, there almost needs to be some sort of like they, 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 this protocol has been evolving um, as you know as time has gone on, and it evolved as the Daniel Petrucci situation unfolded at Aragon last year. Um, and yeah, they they I think they need to, to to tighten that up a bit. And it's almost the case of if you have to if you suffer a crash which requires a trip to the medical center. Until you receive a, a, an all clear, a green light, you're not getting back on that bike. Um, and obviously, Cal Crutchlow, by going via the hospital, um, perhaps he, he, he missed that point and just decided, you know what? I feel fit. I'm going to ride anyway. Um, and all's well that ends well, I guess. He finished fifth. But yeah, it, we, don't, we don't want this to end in a potentially career-threatening injury if a rider gets back on a bike before he's been medically cleared uh, to do so. Um, Cal Crutchlow finished fifth just ahead of Andrea Dovizioso. And Dovizioso, like Valentino Rossi, um, left lamenting Dre his late tyre change. And um, Dovizioso paid a little heavier price for this. Exactly. Again, that, that's that's the worst finishing of the major title rivals, really. And yeah, uh, not not a not a good call from Dovi on that one. The, the late switch ultimately came back to bite him, and gonna have to claw his way a little bit further back up to finishing the top six. Not a bad result by Ducati under normal circumstances, but in a title scenario where every major rival has done better. Um. Yeah, not so great. Yeah, not so great for Andre Vizio. So, if there's one consolation for him, it's that he may well have one of his, in theory, strongest weekends on the calendar coming up um, this weekend, where he may be able to get some of those points back. But yeah, Vizioso, who essentially followed Rossi round um, and uh, did the same as he did, pitted on the same lap in the end with not the same level of dry liver pa- weather pace as, as Rossi, he couldn't make the same progress once he came out on dry tyres. He finished sixth. Um, we haven't necessarily had as much sympathy as others for Jorge Lorenzo through this season, Dre, but I think this is one weekend where we have to have the utmost sympathy for him because even in the wet on Friday, he had pretty good pace. He was up towards the front. He was up in the top six. Um, he looked fairly decent in the dry as well, qualified on the second row of the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, when you look at the result on the face of it, you think, flag to flag race, Jorge Lorenzo 15th, no change there. Um, because he's had, that's happened to him before. But really, this was none of Jorge Lorenzo's doing. Exactly. Um, this was a situation where he'd pit in that middle of the pack situation towards the, the latter end of that, but still would have been on for a decent result. But Ducati, amazingly, did not have their wet bike or their dry bike ready for Lorenzo in the pit. So he had to stand there for 15 seconds while Ducati were making the final preparations to um to, to send him out on his way in, in in his pit stop so yeah that would have according to simon patterson it would have cost lorenzo about eight positions the 15 seconds yeah, would have give, give him 15 seconds back and he's right there with dovi and petrucci in sixth and seventh yeah we would have finished roughly in seventh place they reckon so yeah lorenzo lost a lot of time and a bucket load of points as a result of this so yeah hard not to feel a bit bad for Jorge on that one it makes you wonder given that ducati were one of the later teams to blink on this i don't know why and what on earth was taking them so long to get the dry bike ready yeah because his, his his outright pace through that race wasn't so bad as we saw 
before his bike change, he was leading the Grand Prix. He was ahead of Valentino Rossi up the front. Um, so it wasn't like he was struggling for confidence in the wet conditions, which is something that we've leveled at Jorge justifiably before. And then in the dry conditions, once he changed bikes and come out on slicks, Lorenzo was lapping in the 157s um, in, wow. in the second half of that race. His, his fastest lap was a 57.6 um in the um in the second half of that race and um the final lap of the race for Jorge Lorenzo was a 1578 um that's the same sort of pace that you know the guys at the front was doing Valentino Rossi was admittedly doing low to mid 57s but you know Davizioso as he was coming through the field he was lapping in the 57s Petrucci in eighth was doing on seventh sorry was doing 58s um he only got into the 57s twice um so Lorenzo's pace on dry tires was comparable to those guys but he'd given them a 15 second head start um, unfortunately so exactly. Lorenzo unfortunately didn't get the result that his performance necessarily deserved last weekend um, the Aspargo brothers though um, did get their reward um, Alessio Aspargo probably had his sights set a little higher than the 8th place that he got given that he was running 2nd early on um, but he certainly deserves a mention but Dre we have to touch on his younger brother Paul um, who we spoke in our mid-season review who's done a cracking job with himself out on that KTM um, but for the first time, dragging that bike into the top 10. And even though he was one of the first to pit on lap two, his ninth place finish wasn't really down to his bike change. No, he he clawed his way up into that ninth place. He, he, he had, a, as we mentioned earlier, he had a very, very slow outlap coming out of the pits. But despite that, he managed to claw his way into the top 10. That is an unbelievable job from Paul Espargaro, given the bike. And again, it, sh- it shows a lot that... Uh, the rider quality's always been there, obviously, but at the same time, um, on top of that, and what I find very impressive is that the bike has come such a long way in such a short amount of time. KTM are making real progress, and this was their first top 10 race finish. Um, and the way it's going, there'll be more of these to come down the road because this was a fantastic, real gritty race pace level performance from Paul Spagger. He didn't really gain a ton despite the fact he... He, he came in quite, came in very early, came in the same lap as Marquez, but the, the outlap was so slow, it almost didn't matter that he came in a lap early. But despite that, clawed his way up into the top 10. Very impressive indeed. Yeah, very, very impressive um, from Paul Espargaro. And um, yeah, he, as you say, he pitted the same lap as Marquez. His outlap was, as we mentioned earlier on, a good uh, 14 seconds slower. Um, the Mark Marquez on the same tyre at the same time. Um, but once all the bike changes had shaken out, he was 13th, Paul Spargo, just uh, behind Valentino Rossi. Um, and yeah, as you say, he called his way up. He did a, his fastest lap was a 57.9, um, and he was solidly doing low 58s through the um, the majority, well, through the entirety of that race on dries. Is If you look at his lap charts, it's consistent. It's 58.4, 58.3, 58.0, 58.2, 57.9, and it carries on. It was brilliant pace from Paul. It was it was pace that was comparable with the guys around him, and that's as competitive as the KTM has looked in a dry race all year. Um, and they deserve an awful lot of credit for that, and timely too, given that they've got their home Grand Prix coming up this weekend um, at the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Um, he finished in ninth, just ahead of Jonas Folger. And if we're talking about people with great pace in the dry, Dre, we have to talk about Folger, arguably faster than anybody. Volga, I think, had a shot at a win here. I genuinely think he had a chance to win this race. Volga tends to go extreme. I mean, we called it on last week's show. Volga tends to go extremely well around Bruno. He was he's he's been a race winner here in the past, around Bruno. And yeah, he Both loves of this. Them were in mixed conditions too. Yeah, exactly. In mixed conditions as well. Like he is so good around here, especially when he gets slippery. 
and Volga was setting fastest laps of the race throughout the race on multiple occasions, but had to go through the pits twice because, again, Tech 3 didn't have a dry bike ready for him. And, again, it's cost him dearly. I think Volga would have had a podium finish at worst if he, because, again, he was one of the guys that came in lap two the same time Marquez did, but Tech 3 were not ready for him. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's, let's pick a figure. I mean, what would you say? Going through the pit, essentially, he essentially had a ride-through penalty in that race um, that, that, that his team gave him rather than race to actually, what you'd say, 20, 25 seconds that's cost him? Um, Good shout. Yeah, I reckon 20, 25. You know, give him 25 seconds, and that's an easy second because he was 21 seconds behind Danny Pedrosa uh, in second place. So at the very, even if you say 20 seconds, that's an easy third, and he'd have been, been, he'd have been in a battle with Pedrosa for second. Um, and Folger had stronger pace in the dry your folger was doing consistent mid to low 57s um in the second half of that race um and you know it wasn't like let's say it wasn't like it was just one lap he did it on he was doing it consistently um as that race was unfolding and then he dropped into the 58s towards the end of the race as he was coming through traffic um but his pace was phenomenal and he deserved so much better um zarko's pace was comparable in 12th but he was the last to pit. it was practically autumn by the time joan zarko had pitted for tires um, because he came in on lap six, the end of lap six, start of lap seven, even later than Rossi had. Um, so um, that kind of answers the question of why Zarko was so quick on dry tyres, because he'd come in later than anybody else. Um, the guy who finished between them, the two Tech 3 Yamahas, 10th and 12th, was Alex Rins. And whilst the 11th for the Suzuki rider doesn't necessarily, on the face of it, scream mega ride, that's probably the best we've seen from Rins so far on a MotoGP bike drain. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, that was a that was a, a a true test, I think, for Alex Rins as um as 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 far as MotoGP races go. And like like Qatar, again, he was impressive in that one too. This was another case of changeable conditions, mixed conditions, um, going through the pits. Like this was a test of everything on on the table. And Alex Rins has finished in the top ten again this season. And like given where Suzuki has been in recent times. It may have been this season. That's a very good result like for Suzuki. And I know Ian only was unlucky on that one. We'll get to that in a minute as to why he was unlucky. Uh, but I think they would have finished roughly the same spot if Ian only had the same sort of luck that Rins did. Um, again, very impressive stuff from Rins. He's really starting to find his feet now, and it's starting to show that his talent is coming through quite nicely for him. Um, another top 10, and as impressive a performance as he's had in MotoGP so far. Yeah, absolutely. Folger literally got him on the line. They were just uh, five hundredths of a second apart for 10th and 11th, Folger and Rins. Um, but yeah, Rins with a relative lack of experience just on a MotoGP bike. I mean, he's, he's four or five races behind um, his fellow rookies uh, who he was racing with in that race. And his fellow rookies who are almost certainly on a better bike than him, um, Folger and Zarko, Rins quietly doing a pretty good job. And, you know, he it's not like it was, you know, because of the weather that he did that because he, he'd out-qualified, you know, in Q1 on the, in the dry on the Saturday, um, which I think was the first time Rins has done that as well. So... He was in dry conditions. He was genuinely quicker than Yunone, um, that for the first time, really, uh, last mm. weekend. Um, but you mentioned Yunone, and again, another rider who has um, struggled for, for sympathy this year, but again, deserves some this weekend. Um, granted, he qualified poorly, but um, you know he he was very, very unlucky in the pits, leading to some rather unkind and unfair comments from commentators uh, as a result when we saw him on, on, his, on his side in pit lane. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much carved up by Alessia Spargo in the pits, which saw Alessia get a three-place penalty in the race for it. Um, you know, Nate, 
all told, when you look at the lap charts, Yanone gave up 50 seconds um, in the pit lane oh. um, as a result of that because his outlap was a 3.14, um, which if you compare that to Alex Rins' outlap was a 2.22. Um, so 50 seconds given up. Um, and Andre Yanone finished exactly 50 seconds behind Alex Rins. And um, yeah, Yanone, mm. for all of his faults and for all of the criticism that's come his way this weekend, this one wasn't on him. It was not, no. And I just want to say I was very disappointed by some of the comments that Julian Ryder and Keith Hewen made towards Ianone, just describing it about, that, like, just derogatory male-based comments because he's got a thing for fashion and he might be a bit more effeminate than the average guy. I thought that was very get-with-the-times sort of response to those comments. But um, in, in, in terms of the pit lane action as well, yeah, um, very unfortunate that um, Aprilia and Alicia Spagro, you know, not not really Alicia's fault. I think Aprilia needed to keep their eyes on the ball on this one. Um, the Aprilia basically released him right into the path of Ianoni coming into his box because the Aprilia and Suzuki pit boxes were right next to each other. And as Ianoni's coming in, Alicia Spagro's bike is flying out, and Ianoni obviously has had to make evasive action to get out, get out of the way of that bike coming out of the pits. And Ianoni's dropped dropped his Suzuki in the process and obviously cost him a bucket load of time. Spagaro was given a free place penalty mid-race for um, for that um, for that discretion, unfortunately. And nothing, again, not really Alicia's fault on that one either. But um, another moment of real prettier incompetence. Not the first time this season where they've made no. a, a, a pretty silly mistake. And uh, it's, it's cost their, it's just one of their riders quite dearly when that's concerned. But um, yeah, you know, only for once, um, the unfortunate victim of uh, shenanigans in this case. Yeah, I'm amazed we haven't seen that before, to be honest, in all these flag to flag races where people are all coming at the same time. You know, it's not like, in, I mean, obviously Formula 1 is no stranger to unsafe releases in pit lanes. It happens quite regularly over there. But um, in, in motorcycle races, you know, Pit, pit, pit stops period are very rare in races um, because they're so short it's not like you know it's not like full on races where you have an hour hour and a half long race and you need to change tyres or you need to refuel your motorcycle races you can do on one tank of gas etc so you only tend to get bikes in the pits in flag to flag conditions which means that unlike in a traditional F1 race where you see them all pit um, staggered across a number of laps they're all in together invariably um, they all come in at the same time because the weather's changing and they're all reacting at the same time um, so I'm amazed this hasn't happened before, um, flag to flags, and it's it, it's led to one or two calls around MotoGP this week that perhaps they need to adopt a World Superbike style rule and a Formula E style rule where there is a minimum pit lane time um, for your flag to flag change um, in a way to perhaps try and prevent this rushed changing of bikes where riders and teams aren't really looking at what's coming in the pit lane. Um, when they, they're basically in such a rush, they're basically jumping off one bike onto another and they're going, whatever happens, without really looking around them um, and seeing what's coming. Um, so perhaps that's something that Dorner and Race Direction might adopt in the future, just to j basically just slap a minimum time on it and stop these guys when they come in. You know, if a guy comes in before everyone else, he deserves to get that advantage. But if you're all coming in at the same time, let's try and make this a little bit safer. Um, and I don't think putting a little bicycle helmet on the on the uh, mechanics is necessarily the way of achieving that. Um, necessarily, it did. Um, it did lead us to one of the uh, one of the comedy moments of the weekend as Valentino Rossi tried on his mechanics uh, helmet in pit lane, um, which was rather <laughs> entertaining. 
Um, there's uh, many people joked that that was Valentino Rossi's um, one-off helmet for the weekend, which it wasn't. Um, uh. But um, but anyway, Mark Marquez the winner from Danny Pedrosa, 12-second margin of victory. But that was really only because Mark Marquez was cruising towards the flag. Maverick Vinales third, ahead of teammate Rossi fourth. Crutchlow fifth, ahead of Davizioso in sixth. Um, then came Danilo Petrucci. Alessio Spargaro beats his brother Paul to eighth. Um, Jonas Folger 10th just ahead of Rins and Zarco Carol Abraham who ran up the front towards the beginning of the race dropped to 13th uh, Jack Miller 14th and Jorge Lorenzo in 15th um, and one other rider that I suppose we'll mention Dre although um, he won't thank us for mentioning it um, Scott Redding who finished 16th just missed out on a point this was a guy who badly badly needed a good result and when he was running second early on it looked like he was going to get one um, but poor Scott, for, unfortunately, tumbled all the way out of the points altogether. Sigh. Um, yeah, this, this, this was a this was a golden chance Anything for Scott. Morale took another kick. Yeah, this was a golden chance for Scott Redding to to bring home some really nice points, especially given that Danilo has had you know multiple podiums this season to his name, and Redding has not had a result like that all season. Redding is one of the best guys in the field for races like this, where conditions are slippery. Conditions like if it's a wet race, Redding is one of the best guys in the field, and that is a credit to him that he has become a bit of a wet weather specialist. But this time around, his dry pace was so bad he fell out of the points altogether. But yeah, uh, and, and he made the right call. To be fair, to him. Mm. He, came, he came in on lap three, so he, he only came in a lap after Marquez. Yeah, um, and he was, but unfortunately, his pace, as you say in the dry, was just dropping off so much. He was doing two minute point nine um, oh, by the end oh. of the race, so he was lapping three seconds a lap slower even than Paulus Barger on the KTM was going, um, which makes you wonder whether by, by coming in as early as he did, he just ruined his tires early on um, and just fell back like a stone. Um, and as I say, in the end, Jorge Lorenzo took the final point off him um, on the last lap of the race. Um, other riders outside the points Tito Rabat, Sam Lowe's, Andre Inone who we've documented lost 50 seconds in the pit lane Hector Barbara who also had to come through the pits twice he jumped the start um, and Bradley Smith whose bike broke down Loris Baz who um, had his own problem he also had a very very long bike change because he also fell off in the pit lane and Alvaro Bautista who crashed out after changing to slicks uh, championship standings then look like this Mark Marquez leads it as we mentioned by 14 points now um, from Maverick Vinales, that's a gain of nine points from the uh, summer break. Uh, Davizioso is a further seven back. Then Rossi, one point behind Davizioso. From 10 points covering the top four, it is now 22 covering the top four. Danny Pedrosa is fifth, a further nine behind Rossi. Joan Zarco holds on to sixth, although Folger has now closed the gap on him. It's down to 11 points. Uh, Danilo Petrucci and Cal Crutchlow are level on 75 points in eighth and ninth, with Jorge Lorenzo tenth on 66. Uh, then comes Bautista, Miller, Alicia Spargo, Redding and Baz. Uh, Iannone is 16th, Abraham 17th, Rabat is 18th. Then Paul Spargo, who's jumped up ahead of Hector Barbara now into 19th. And Alex Rins has jumped above Bradley Smith into 21st in the points. Uh, in the championship, that's Alex Rins' first points-scoring ride since Argentina. Now on to Moto2. And as I mentioned at the top, Dre, it's very, very rare that you can call a Thomas Lutie victory an unlikely win. Um, but this one kind of was. Thomas Lutie, who has never won at Bruno before um, in his career and has never really looked like winning at Bruno before in his Moto2 career, um, qualified down in 12th, which was his equal lowest of the season, and a, well, how do we put it? Divine intervention from above um, intervened. The rain fell, the red flags flew, and all of a sudden, Thomas Lutie was transformed. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's like Thomas Lutey was was doing the rain dance on on, on the paddock before before the race had started, and it, it it turned out beautifully for him. Yeah, Lutey was nowhere in 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 the dry conditions. The rain came down. We had a very late red flag pulled out for it. Um, but Tom, Thomas Lutey was seventh at this stage. Yeah, Lutey was seventh. Um, the red flag came out. Now the rules of the red flag is you go back to the last completed lap which put Luti, I think, back in 12th place again for the restart. And, uh, oh, look, Luti's got around the outside of five guys and led through turn one, yeah. of course. Uh, and then Luti goes on to, off. to win the six-lap Mozo 2 sprint race in the wet in Breno by a handful of seconds. It has made everybody look stupid. Um, yeah, Thomas Luti, everybody. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Like, we, we've always said he's good for a couple of wins or so a year in Moto2, but... Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, this was probably the most unlikely of them because this is probably it's been his most uncompetitive weekend of the season, um, where he never looked like he had race winning pace at any stage. Um, yet the conditions just transformed it. Yeah, as I say, he was he, he was seventh after the the red flag. Um, yeah, the red flag came out. He was running seventh, and I think he was seventh on the grid for that restart. Um, just looking at the. Um, Oh no, he was. He was eleventh on the grid. He was eleventh for the uh, for the restart. Um, so he gained ten spots in uh, around a hundred meters, um, which, <laughs> which, which was just friggin' insane, ridiculous, um, and incredible the way it's panned out, Dre. Because he went into the race um, with a pretty substantial championship deficit um, to Franco Morbidelli, um, and you know he, he trailed by thirty two points. Um, oh, sorry, by 34 points. And at one stage, it looked like that championship deficit was going to grow to over 50 um, before the red flag came out. As it turns out, he's cut that deficit in half down to 17. We got a season again here, folks. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, just like that. Luti, like that was that race win was so valuable for Luti. He, like, it, it pretty much cancels out the, the Saxon ring crash that he had, which you know, gave Morbidelli one hand on the title going into the summer break. It's now back to something where it's manageable for Thomas Lutie now, where, and we all know Lutie's been Mr. Consistency pretty much all season long. And it, this, this actually, you know, whew, puts, puts him in a pretty good position now again. So, yeah, we'll talk about Morbidelli's struggles in a minute in the, in the wet. But, yeah, this was a very, very valuable win for Lutie. It could not have come at a better time. Yeah, and it, it almost showed a side of Lutie that, I hadn't seen before. I mean, I know he came on strong towards the end of last season and suddenly fought his way into title contention. But, you know, that was, as I say, that was a win that never looked on the cards until the red flag came out. Um, And MotoGP.com actually came up with a very, very apt sort of title for their race report for Moto2, um, where they put Opportunity Knocks, Looty Answers. Um, And and that's that's what it was. Thomas Looty never looked like winning. And as soon as an opportunity came up, like champions do, he grabbed it. Uh, and that's kind of, that's as I say, that's the kind of thing that wins you world championships at the end of the day. When it's all looked lost, when you never look like you had 25 points to be to be taken, and all of a sudden an opportunity presents itself and Luti grabbed it with both hands, where Morbidelli didn't. And, exactly. You know, and Luti may, you know, Luti may not necessarily go on and win this championship because he looked like he was suddenly going to claw his way into contention last year when uh, Malaysia rolled around and then unfortunately... Zarko went away from him again and clinched the title there. That may happen again, um, but for me that was a, that, that, that was a key key race for Luti, which told us, yeah, maybe he's not going away this season, um, which we perhaps feared he might after the Saxon ring. He's clawed his way, as you say, right back into it again, 
um, at the expense of Morbidelli. Um, Matai Pasini will be one rider who will be uh, wishing the rain hadn't fallen because he looked the guy to beat in dry conditions right throughout the weekend. Took pole position on the Saturday. Um, absolutely dominated the qualifying session. Was leading the Grand Prix um, prior to the red flag. Um, and then rain falls. Thomas Lutti is getting away from him and down goes Pasini. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Matteo Pazzini just didn't get it right in those because you're absolutely right. In the dry, he looked super strong out there. He looked like he was the guy that probably had the most amount of control. He had a good few bike lengths um, over the field. He looked very, very comfortable out there. That he looks like he had a real shot at winning that race again. Um, again, he had his first pole position in ten years as well, like sticking it, like sticking it on pole. First pole um, just, since just, Australia, two thousand and seven. <laughs> I feel old just thinking about that. But um yeah, again, again, Vasini was super strong pretty much all the way through the weekend, looked great in the dry, he misjudged it in the rain, pushing a little bit too hard, trying to chase Thomas Luti, and down he goes. And yeah, that pretty much strikes um Bassini's slim chances of the title out now, pretty much at this point. But it's, it's a shame because he's been going from strength to strength this season, but uh, that's that's a setback in the probably the eventual fight for maybe third or fourth overall. Um, so yeah, just a shame for Bassini because again he he looked really good all weekend, but just made an error in the wet and it cost him dearly. Yeah, in terms of the fight for third and fourth overall in the championship, that looks like it's going to be between Alex Marquez and Miguel Oliveira, who are now level on points in the battle for second place on 133, having finished second and third. Marquez doing what he's always tended to do, Dre around Bruno, which is fight his way up the front somewhere. And Miguel Oliveira, who's making that KTM a regular fixture on the podium now. Yeah, this is no coincidence now. Like, again, we have to, I have to give serious praise to KTM. This is their first ever Moto2 chassis. And it's it's good enough to win races. It's a it's a seriously good chassis. And Miguel Oliveira is getting looking like a better rider by the by the by the race. He's like there there is no argument against it. He's an elite rider in this class in just his second season in on a brand new bike, and it was a very comfortable third place out there. It wasn't under any real pressure. Didn't quite have the legs um, in in this one to. Uh, you know, to get up to Alex Marquez, but I think he'll very happily take his third podium in four races. And again, he's come very close. Like at the Saxon, where he was just literally a half a bike length from his first Moto2 victory. But Oliveira, more and more, is looking like a guy that is going to be a MotoGP one day as a, was a, as the first Portuguese guy in the class since Tony Elias. And that wouldn't that be cool to say? But um, yeah, he's doing a brilliant job. He's doing all the right things in that KTM team. And this was another very strong performance. Yeah, and uh, I don't like saying it, given that I'm a bit of a fan of his, but I think he'll have uh, Bradley Smith in particular and Paul looking over their shoulders next year. Um, I think it's pretty clear that if he does go into one's GP, it's going to be with that team. Yes. Um, with, with KTM, he's already tested their most GP bike um, in the summer break. Um, but it's just to emphasise how well KTM are going. Let's not forget, Brad Binder was in that leading group before the red flag came out. He was yeah. right at the back of that leading group, running sixth um, and ahead of Luti, the eventual winner. Um, fortunately, Brinda didn't quite have that same level of confidence in the wet conditions um, in the second half of that race. And uh, as a result, finished uh, down in a 12th position. Um, but yeah, Binder was looking good in the dry as well before the red flags came Absolutely. out. So KTM really have made strides, and it's not just it's not just Oliveira who's making that bike fit. They've got a good bike that's working for both riders at the moment. And um, as I say, with their home Grand Prix coming up, they'll want perhaps to 
challenge for their first win this weekend in the class and who would put it past them um, at the moment you really do start to feel that, that it's a case of when rather than if that KTM win uh, in Moto2 um, before we get to the championship lead let's talk about some of the other stories um, ahead of him because we have to work our way all the way down to 8 before we arrive at Franco Morbidelli um, and let's talk about the men in 4th and 5th Luca Marini and Xavi Verge two of the riders whose reputations grow by the weekend uh, and Marini that's a career best for him Moto2 4th position yeah, that was a very good performance from Luca Marini. Like we can no longer make jokes about him being Valentino Rossi's half brother anymore. He's actually pretty good now. Yeah, um, yeah Luca he's probably going to join Valentino's team next year. Damn it. Um, okay, but besides that, yeah, a very strong performance from Luca Marini again. There, comfortable in fourth place. Um, very strong performance indeed. And yeah, again, another rider that seems to be seems to be going from strength to strength this year. And again, doing a great doing great work for forward racing. So yeah, very impressive indeed. And Xavier Vierge, I mean, we, we've, we've quietly forget he was last year's Rookie of the Year because it was a pretty down year for rookies in in general. Um, but yeah, like for overall, like they're doing really, really good work right now. And yeah, like I said, Vierge is going. Obviously, we heard last week he's going to Dynavolt next year. Not sure that's the best move for him, if I'm being honest, because Dynavolt was a team that's had flashes of success, but nothing. Nothing amazing at this level, yeah, but question marks over the suitor. Yeah, the, yeah that suitor chassis is still a bit. Yeah, but Vierge is, um, yeah, Vierge and Marina are doing great jobs right now. And again, they'd like, I'd love to see what they do next year on the well, looks of it, slightly better teams in terms of assets. Yeah, Simone Corsi finished just behind them in sixth. His weekend was highlighted by a very Simone Corsi style uh, side swipe on Dominic Agata in qualifying, um, which earned him a three place grid penalty. Didn't inconvenience him too much. He still finished sixth. Ahead of Francesco Bagnaia in seventh um, after he'd qualified on the second row of the grid. And then we work our way down to Franco Morbidelli in eighth, Dre, who I guess we can we can almost excuse him being a bit cautious given that he had the most to lose. He's the championship leader. But yet again, this is another Grand Prix where Franco Morbidelli's had damage to the limit and he hasn't limited it at all. Yeah, it's... it's. I mean, I, I, know, I know the Mark VDS team was vocal about this on Twitter race that yeah like they they had no rear grip on the bike the wet setup was wrong so you might have to put the team a little bit of responsibility for this off during the red flag the team looks like they made the bike a little bit too soft so by the time that we had gotten to the race itself and the restart the bike was all over the place and yeah for apparently frankie had no rear grip at all um and that is not something you want in wet conditions to have such poor grip like that so yeah it's 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 hurting pretty bad in, in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, Morbidelli may not be entirely at fault for this one, uh, unfortunately. And eighth place is a pretty damaging blow to his title campaign, given that Thomas Luti won so comfortably. But we'll have to wait and see um, if that if that damages him in the long run. But, yeah, just, a, I think, a, a combination of maybe a lack of confidence on Frankie's part, mostly also combined with just a, 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 a bad setup call from Mark VDS on this one. Yeah, and they probably haven't bargained that the guy who they're racing the championship from 11th on the grid would go and win the race in a six-lap sprint um, as well. Um, and, yeah, as I say, it's an expensive mistake over made it because his championship lead was quite literally cut in half from 34 points to 17 mm -hmm. at the weekend. Um, and it could have been worse had the race been a little bit longer because he had a queue of four riders behind him um, from 9th to 12th, which included a United States-born debutant by the name of Joe Roberts. And, Dre, I think we all know the name now. 
no relation. Um, but yes, a, a, a very strong performance indeed from from Joe Roberts there in his debut. And again, as we mentioned before we went in the air, he's done, he's done more in one race than Yoni Hernandez managed in the entire season on the same machinery in his first race in. Um, like on his first race in, like he's come in, he's put it in the top ten. Incredible job from 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 Joe Roberts on his first time out, especially in mixed conditions in a second race where where it was very wet out there as well. So very impressive stuff from Roberts, and I hope this continues. Yeah, yeah, because in the in the wet conditions of free practice one, he was um, in uh, where was he? He was fourteen, so he was, he was competitive in the wet in free practice one. Qualified down the back, qualified in 31st, but only 2.1 seconds off pole, um, which for his first time on the bike is not bad at all. Um, right. And yeah, it looks like he's going to be given the rest of the season with that team. And um, I think he's already done enough in one race to suggest he deserves that. Um, and you know, without wishing to put too much pressure on the guy, given that America doesn't have anyone in this paddock, so we don't want to lumber too much pressure on him as, oh, America finally has a rider in, motor, in the MotoGP paddock. But we wish him all the best and we hope that he does a good job because it would definitely do the sport a power of good if we have a United States competitor doing a good job um, and competing. Um, the Mother 2 result then, uh, won by Thomas Lutti and uh, a great piece of trivia about this Moto2 race. Thomas Lutti's margin of victory was the biggest margin of victory in any Moto2 race this season, even though it was by far the shortest race of the season. <laughs> Six lapper and he won by nearly five seconds. Uh, from Alex Marquez, Miguel Oliveira in third, then came Marini fourth, career best, Vierke equaling a career best in fifth, um, ahead of Simone Corsi for speed up sixth, then comes Bagnaia, Morbidelli, Remy Gardner second of the Tech Threes in ninth, and Joe Roberts tenth. A um, couple more rookies behind him, in fact three, four rookies behind him, with Navarro, Binder, Locatelli and Powey, 11th to 14th, that's Powey's first points of the season, and Hafish Sayarin in 15th, the final point for Malaysia. Championship standings then, led by Morbidelli, but as I've told you, his championship lead has been slashed in half by Thomas Lutti. It's down now to 17 points. 182 plays 165. Um, Marquez and Oliveira tied for third on 133. Then comes Bagnaia in fifth on 87. Bassini sixth on 73. Um, he paid the price for his crash. Nakagami, who was nowhere all weekend, was seventh. Corsi's up to eighth. Uh, Marini to ninth. Vierke to tenth. Dominic Egata has dropped behind a lot of them now. He is down to 11th place um into moto 3 then and um as i mentioned at the top of the show Drake, this was a race where in moto 3 generally um wet weather tends to ruin the grand prix it tends not to leave moto 3 as exciting as it often is but this kind of booked the trend didn't it it, it tend up, ended up mm -hmm. being a kind of normal moto 3 race at the end we had a group fight and john Mir beat fanati right at the end of it Yep, <laughs> Fanatis must be getting really tired of this uh, of this Joanne Mir bloke in front of him, um, stealing his crown for the last four races. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This again, as I said, like the the rain tends to split the field. It, it becomes a a greater test of rider skill, and it shows sometimes shows the inconsistencies between guys in the dry and the wet. But this one, yep, we had a good lead fight for the entire race but period. It's a brilliant race. It was a brilliant race, a very, a very exciting like battles all the way up and up and down through the field. 
some guys coming through, some guys really struggling. Um, but again, we had a great lead battle for the win. Mir and Fanati, you know, going at it tooth and nail pretty much all the way to the line. But it was uh, in this case, it, it was Joanne Mir that came out on top again. He's having a he's having a fantastic season the way it's going right now, and he's just got seemingly just got the measure of these guys. Mm, yeah, he's looking every inch a world champion, isn't he, at the moment, Joanne Mir? Because we're at what we're at race ten of the season. Joanne Mir has now won six of them. <laughs> Didn't Binder win six for the entire season last year? Uh, I, well, I'll have a look at that. It won't be many more than that. I think it might have been seven because he won the final race of the Hang season. Hang on. Digging um, it up right now. But at the rate he's going, John Mir might be into double figures worth by the end of this season. Um, yeah, for the record, yeah, Brabinder had seven wins last season in, in Moto 3. So I was one out on that one. Um, winning two of the last three definitely helped. But um, yeah, you're absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the way Mir's going, he could be in double digits. We've not seen a dominant guy in, in the in the lightweight class thing since Marquez right now. Joanne Mir is, has been so good this season of, of just, just basically just not having any bad days, really, and just making the best of a bad situation. He's doing such a brilliant job at that right now. And, and again, like if, if he gets a clear run, he's not going to have a bad result. It's as simple as that. He's not finished outside of the top 10 in any Moto3 race this season. Um, and, and that's incredibly impressive. Again, he's he's won six. He had the extra podium at Haref uh, by finishing third and then a seventh, eighth, and a ninth. That's his season so far. And Romano Fanati must be sitting there right now with his five second places saying, what have I got to do to win a championship? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, he's had four second places in a row, three yeah. of which were Tamiya um, in the last few races. Um, there was the one, of course, at Assen where he was second to, um, I forget the rider who he was second to. It was Aaron Cannett, wasn't it, who he was second to, um, who won that Grand Prix. Um, so Fanati, like, it's one of those where do you really criticise him given that he's clearly the second best guy in the in the class at the moment? Uh, he just keeps getting beaten by the first best guy. It's like it's like criticising Andy Murray every time he lost to Novak Djokovic. Um, it's like, well, it's like it's like well yeah he's not as good as Djokovic but he's better than everyone else. Um, yeah, it's like guys, Novak's a Terminator. What are you yeah. meant to do? <laughs> so that's that's kind of the position Fanati's in at the moment, and it. it Further backs up my theory that he just needs to get out of there and go into Moto2. Um, even if it means not winning that championship, just get into Moto2. Um, you might actually be really, really good on a Moto2 bike as well. Um, and we'll we'll really see what you're all about. So um, Fanati, who's looking pretty good to finish this season as the championship runner-up, which would be higher than he's ever finished in a Moto2 championship before. Um, but at the moment, he's, he's, he's getting a little bit... I don't know if he's getting frustrated, but I wouldn't blame him if he is for these... Uh, this repetitive nature of finishing second to John Mir quite a lot. Um, and and as much as, as I say, as much as you like to criticise Fanati, you have to praise Mir because this guy so often, Dre, towards the end of the race on that final lap, just seems to have that extra gear that he can go to just to see off any challenges that are with him. Exactly. I mean, I mean the way Mir's going right now, I think he just is just like, again, the fact he hasn't got a DNF, the fact he's only finished in the top 10 this season... It's 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 just been super efficient from me all the way through, just picking off these places where he can get it, and yeah, he's been so he's, he's been so good, so good. All he's really got to do is just not make any major mistakes, and he should win the title pretty easily because the pace is there, the racecraft is there, and he's not. He's not falling off the bike. He knows how to bring it home, even if the situation isn't necessarily in his favour and he gets roughed up a little bit every once in a every once in a while, but he still manages to get the bike home and that is half the battle in these sorts of fights. And you know, 
having beaten Fanati three out of the four times in that streak of second places, there's not much more Fanati can do. Even if he's not taking massive point advantages out of the gap every weekend, he's he's keeping Fanati behind him, and that's what he got to do at the end of the day. Yeah, championship lead now is 42 points um, for Joan Mir. So, and he he now came into the round, of course, where he claimed his first win. Uh, last year in Austria as a rookie. So, um, yeah, that's a way to uh, fill his Moto3 rivals um, with even more dread. Uh, Fanati's season so far, 5th, 7th, 1st, 2nd, a crash from the lead in France, 13th in that massive group fight um, in Mugello, and then he's gone 2nd, 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 2nd um, since then. Like, oh, come on, man. So, so it's <laughs> hard, hardly a bad season um, for Verano Fanati, but as I say, um, Joan Mia is just so much better um, at the moment. Uh, quite comfortably, the third best man in the class at the moment in the championship is Aaron Canet. And um, he, that was the case here again in the Czech Republic. But he didn't exactly take the direct route to it. Even at half distance, Dre, Aaron Canet, who started 17th, was still back in 12th. An incredible second half of the race. So I'm crumb through to third. Sensational second half of the race. His, his pace in the second half of that race was electric. Unbelievable stuff from Canet. And again, picking off Ben Schneider. Um, and Guevara right at the end of the race to, to steal that podium on the final lap was a, was a very nice reward for Canet for what was an incredible display of speed in the second half of that race. And it, it begs the question again, why the hell is he staying in Moto3? Hmm. <laughs> well, he'll, uh, he'll probably point to the two ahead of him in the championship that are moving up. I suppose Canet will feel he's got a, he's got a championship in front of him um, next year. Um, his teammate for next year will be changing though and we'll tell you all about that um, in a little bit we don't know whose teammate will be but we know his current teammate is on the move um, and Ayat Bastianini who had another disastrous weekend um, it has to be said he finished down in 17th um, but let's tell you about some of the other guys ahead of him you mentioned Dre Ben Schneider and Guevara um, who um, Ben Schneider is, is an interesting one because he's coming on strong as one of the real unsung heroes and a real leader for KTM. We look at that team as the factory KTM team. Uh, and Nicolo Antonelli is doing a good job of making us believe otherwise. But Ben Schneider's I mean, a good season, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's 13th overall. We all know that the KTMs have, have struggled this year. And Ben Schneider's pretty much had to lead the factory effort this year because Nicolo Antonelli has been a bust, by, for lack of a better term. Um, but Ben Schneider, like, he's getting better by the race. Yeah. Again, he's, I still think he's, he deserves those points that he didn't get at Assen. Yeah, I mean, again, I think he, I think that rule was silly. I think it's a rule that, you know, when are you ever going to apply this rule? I mean, really? I mean... It, it, it seemed to be a rule that just is just there be, for the sake of it more than anything else. But yeah, I think Ben Chandler deserves those points. But yeah, he's getting better by the round. He's now a more regular feature in the top 10. And he's climbing his way up the board now up into 13th overall. He's doing a good job with, with the tools in front of him. There's only a handful of guys on KTMs that are better be, that are better than him this season. We all know one of them is Marcos Ramirez, and he's been fantastic this season. And I'm stunned he's not been snapped up by a better team than Platinum Bay um, for next season um, because because he's probably the number one prospect on the board right now. But, um, yeah, right now, strange situation. But Ben Schneider, again, obviously his best Moto3 performance to date, and that was a very impressive job indeed. Was unlucky not to have had a podium. Yeah, best of this season so far. He had those two podiums last year at Silverstone and in Malaysia. In, although in, the Malaysia, those wet races, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, the Silverstone one was a great one where he was battling with Binder and with... Uh, I forget the guy that finished second. I think it was Bastini who was second. I was there, so I should remember it, but I don't. Um, the Malaysia race, we all remember, where half the field crashed out on oil and they didn't stop the race. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Banyaya went on and won it, so you can almost put an asterisk next to that podium because uh, Ben Schneider took that podium by virtue of the fact that he wasn't one of the riders that fell off then. Um, but he finished third. Um, but he hasn't had one this season so far. But he has been getting better and better as the season has gone on, which is encouraging for him and for that team, which has had the mother of all shockers so far in 2017. Uh, Juan Frank Guerrero in fifth, and um, an interesting weekend for that team. Um, in that they had their first ever pole position. Guevara qualified third, so they had two on the front row, um, and then went on to finish fifth. Gabriel Rodrigo, um, the Argentine, first Argentine pole since Sebastian Porto was a thing. Um, that's how long ago it was. Um, fortunately, he came over all Gabriel Rodrigo in the race and crashed. Um, but we have to mention his pole, Dre, because um, we have to put this into, into perspective. The guy crashed on his first time lap of qualifying, had to go to the medical centre. By the time he was back in his pit box, there were five minutes to go. He hadn't got a lap time on the board. So he goes out and whacks it on pole. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> Stunning. Stunning performance from Rodrigo in qualifying there. Nobody saw that coming. Um, just very, very impressive that you're able to just you know go out there and in one lap beat everybody that's got, has had a lot more track time. And again, probably all looking for toes half the time as well that Rodrigo's gone out there and done that and on, on one hot lap, gone back in and taken pole position, um, especially in a class where Jorge Martin has been the recent pole king with the last five that he's had in, 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 in Moto3 but this season. But yeah, incredible stuff from Rodrigo. A shame he wasn't able to take advantage of that in the race. Yeah, it is interesting though, isn't it? Because we hear that a lot about the, the current mm-hmm. Moto3 rules and all of the slipstreaming that goes on. And the pe- we have some people occasionally say, oh, why don't they just go to a one-lap Super Bowl? Um Well, this isn't going to help that, is it? When um, everyone's fanning around looking for a toe all 40 minutes, then Gabriel Rodrigo goes out and in one lap beats them all to pole. <laughs> so, so yeah, if, uh, if anyone's looking at that, they might think that a one-lap shootout is the best way to go because Rodrigo was quicker than a lot of them. Um, but anyway, it didn't work out for him in the race, as we mentioned. He didn't score a point because he crashed, remounted, and finished down in... Uh, well, where did he finish? Finished outside the top 20. So uh, no points, unfortunately, for the Argentine uh, last weekend. He 26th. finished 26th. Um, John McPhee finishing 6th for the British talent team on a Honda, ahead of Marcus Ramirez in 7th, Tatsuki Suzuki in 8th, Adam Norodin in 9th. And completing the top 10 uh, was the Thai Nakarin Adarat Fuvapat, who, along with Tim Georgi, the German wildcard, um, produced those kind of performances, Dre, that I think we all love in these Moto3 races. We love a good giant killing. Um, and these wet conditions at the moment, or the moment that it was taking place where they were at the front, we looked like we were going to get one, but unfortunately, the track dried out just early enough for both Atirat Fubupa and Georgie just to tumble out of contention a bit. Yeah, sad times, because they're, 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 Tim Georgie was doing a great job there, just finished outside the points in 18 for Nakarin in, 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 in 10th place. I mean, it, it, like, the rain brings out the best in certain riders, and I think Nakarin might qualify under that bracket. It's a real shame, and I don't know. I don't know what it is with riders from that part of the world, that east, that Southeast Asia bracket, where this makes them exceedingly good in wet conditions. But it seems to apply again here. Um, great performance. I love a bit. Of, we, again, we love a giant killing on this show, and uh, yeah, a great, great job indeed by Nakarin to get a, his first top ten. Yeah, you'll have noticed there. Dre is going the cautious approach and only mentioning his Christian name. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than his surname, Atirat Fuvapat. Uh, he was in 10th place. Andrea Migno, uh, he was in 11th. Then came Albert Arenas, uh, best result from Mahindra for a long time in 12th. Uh, Philip Ertl, 13th. Dennis Foggia, who we mentioned last week, making his debut for the uh, Platinum Bay team in 14th. And he did beat one of the Sky VR46 riders. Uh, he beat Bulliger in the end. Bulliger finished down in 23rd. Um, and Ayumi Sasaki taking the final point. Foggia is a Sky VR46 junior prospect in the CEV. 
um, Junior World Championship. So um, Bulliger will not have enjoyed seeing him finish ahead of him uh, in that one. Championship standings then as a result of all of that. Joan Mir leads it by 42 points now from Rano Fanati. It's looking ominous. Aaron Cannon in third. He's a further 22 behind Fanati. Uh, John McPhee uh, finishing sixth of the weekend, but it's leapt him all the way up to fourth in the World Championship ahead of Jorge Martin. Uh, in fifth, Martin had to withdraw for the weekend. His uh, recovery hadn't quite completed itself in time. He did start the weekend in Bruneau, but pulled out before qualifying. Uh, Marcos Ramirez is sixth on 88. Fabio Di Gian Antonio, who was out of the points, finished um, oh, he's seventh in the championship on 85, ahead of Mignon on 83. Uh, so just 10 points covers fourth to eighth in the world championship. Guevara is ninth, um, and he's leapfrogged Bastianini, who is now tenth. Bulliger is 11th in the world championship. Um, which is not great considering he was mine and Bex's title pick at the start of the season. Well, to be fair, I picked Bastianini, so I'm not doing much better myself. So. No, he's 10th in the points at the moment. No, we, we're, we're crap at this, look, yeah. guys. Yeah, don't ask us again for predictions. If you haven't learned no, that from no. the previous three seasons, then uh, we can't help you, I'm afraid. Waste of time. Yep. Uh, right then, let's uh, move on to the British Superbike Championships when we return after this break. We will talk Thruxton BSB. Stay with us. Let's head back to British Shores and to Thruxton for the uh, fastest circuit on the uh, British Superbike calendar. And uh, a circuit that fortunately proved a little too fast and a little too uh, extreme for Luke Mossy, who uh, had a dreadful crash in free practice on the Friday. Um, And not only did it rule him out of the Thruxton weekend, Dre, but it might have put his showdown spot at risk. Yeah, he's looking in a very precarious position now. I mean, again, we have Cadwell Park in two weeks' time, or just over a week's time by the time you're listening to this show. He's on 161 points right now. He is 25 above the drop zone, which is where Jake Dixon is right now. He's seventh overall. So he's got a 25-point cushion um, coming up. And the two threats outside of that showdown top six are Jake Dixon on the RAF reserves Kawasaki and Christian Iden on the Tyco BMW. And like, I think and I'm, I'm not sure about Dixon, but I think Iden is definitely a threat for that spot. Um, given that his, his pace all season has been top five level pretty much all the way through this season. And yeah, like Mossy, it was an awful accident. He's, he's cracked a vertebra in his back and, as anybody will tell you who's, who's had it, there is no such thing as a minor back surgery. They are brutal. And I'm not sure Mossy's going to be fit for Cadwell Park in two weeks' time. Um, it might be best if he misses out and then focuses on a full recovery for Silverstone in a month's time, which is, the, I think, the last round before the showdown series begins. Um, but, yeah, like, like you say, Mossy is... Oof. Oh, man, that's... That is an awful time to have an injury. And look, the way it's going, there are eight really, really competitive guys in BSB and maybe a ninth if you throw Ellison in on a semi-regular basis. And yeah, this could put Mossy's spot in real jeopardy, especially if he misses Cadwell Park and Eden has another really good weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a worry. Um, I mean, we saw um, Chaz Davies quite recently have a broken vertebra. Um, mm. And uh, you know, even when he returned, what three, four weeks later, he was still you know riding in a bit of pain at Laguna Seca um, when he returned. So yeah, it's not the kind of injury you get over in a week. 
Um, no. So, um, so that's the fear for Luke Mossy that um, Kenwell Park coming up, which is a pretty physical circuit at the best of times. Um, you know, it's it's a very old school school style circuit. If you've not seen Cadwell Park before, um, oh yes, it's it's a great spectacle. Don't get me wrong. If you want to watch, if you watch it on TV, it is a great spectacle, especially when they go over the mountain. Um, but you don't want to go over the mountain with a broken back. Um, no. So so, um, so that is the fear for Luke Mossy that when he returns, if he does return next week, I mean, you don't want him to rush back, and that's kind of one thing the showdown lends itself to is it gives you time to recover from injury um, because yes. you can miss rounds and it not necessarily cost you your well your your championship chances um but yeah mossy might well if you even if he returns at silverstone he is going to be returning at silverstone for that triple header under real pressure he's going to need a good weekend there to ensure he gets in the showdown and all it could take is he returns at, at silverstone has one bad race weekend where he crashes or his bike fails and he could be out of the showdown altogether and this is a guy who led the championship a couple of weeks ago um yeah. so it's amazing how quickly it can all change uh, in bsb um and Josh Brooks took full advantage in the end in race one, um, having qualified on the front row. Jake Dixon taking his first ever pole. We'll come on to him in a moment. Um, but Josh Brooks taking his first victory of the season, Dre, and the first win for the um, Amble Hire Tag Yamaha team. Um, and it has to be said, this is a win that's been coming for a while now. It has. And again, Brand Hatch was probably the proof that, oh, yeah, Yamaha's gotten their crap together, basically. And he's, and like, again, Brooks, we all know on a Yamaha how dangerous he can be. I mean, we, we, all, we all saw him completely dominate the 2015 season, and especially in the second half, and that Yamaha seemingly just found an extra second a lap out of its back pocket. Similar deal here, by the looks of it. Um, and again, Yamaha seems to have found something that's clicked on that bike, and Josh Brooks is away. And yeah, you know, a, a narrow win in race one, but a, a win where yeah he was he was he was in full control, um, was never really under any sort of trouble, and again a, a very comfortable race one victory in the end. But yeah, it's looking like Yamaha are back. Yeah, Look especially, out especially when you consider race two, because it's it's pretty fair to say that with a, a lap and a half to go, Josh Brooks is on target for a double before he falls off. Yes, absolutely, and uh, with with the brands hands with the brands hatch crash, and now this race two crash. If you had given Brooks those forty five points at least, he'd be right on top of Shaky Burn in in the terms of the overall lead of the championship. So the and, way it's and go- he'd be he'd be second on podium points as well. If you give him those exactly. eight podium points, he'd only be on twenty two, which is one more than Haslam, and only eight shy of Shaky Burn. Yeah, like Josh Brooks has exploded the last two weekends, but he hasn't really got the points to show for it, and it's a shame because he's he, he, the way he's uh, he's made mistakes that have cost him at least forty five points and at least eight podium credits, and that's a real shame because, like, you look at Brooks now fifth overall in the stands, and you think, okay, he's in the mix, but he really should be up at the championship end right about now. The way he's 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 shown some real form. In the last in the last two weekends now, but again, it doesn't really show that, and it's, it still makes him vulnerable to the guys behind him, like O'Halloran, like Dixon, and didn't like Brooks's spot is far from confirmed right now. Yeah, only, so he, only Shaky and Haslam really at the moment are any anything like safe uh, in that agreed. top six at the moment. Um, third downwards um, is still up for grabs, and amazingly, third is where we now find Pizza Hickman. Um, in the British Superbike Championship, he's the guy that we've mentioned in previous shows. There's the guy who's been going under the radar, just getting regular point scores every weekend and just ghosting his way into the showdown without any podium credits to show for it. Until Thruxton, uh, where Hickman <laughs> took 45 points from a possible 50 on the uh, RF, on the um, Smiths Racing BMW. Congratulations to the Smiths team and to Amble Hire. Two yes. um, 
sort of unsung teams, two um, privately run teams, um, the Smith's team run by, it's a family run team run by Rebecca Smith. Uh, it's their first ever British Superbike win. Um, and Peter Hickman, if we're talking about people who've exploded, Peter Hickman exploded at Thruxland, 45 points an hour of 50. And just like that, the reward for the consistency is now put him in a really good spot for a spot in the showdown now, purely because he's not made any major mistakes. He's not made any major mistakes, and now he's got the really big weekend he can now cash in on. Um, brilliant job from Peter Hickman all weekend. Astonishing. So the best he's ever been on the British Superbike. And as you say, a, a, a fantastic victory for the very small, privately run Smiths team that have been digging away for a real class rider to spearhead their team. And Hickman has been class all season long. Maybe not the fastest bike on paper, but Hickman has not put a foot wrong with it all season long. He's taken the, the points he can get, and he seems to have gotten better as the season's gone on. And now... With that first and second place at Frox, and he's now got a real good chance of a showdown spot. Yeah, yeah, as he's looking good at the moment, especially given that the two remaining circuits before the showdown are always locked off and the top six places are decided. Uh, two of his better rounds, better circuits on the calendar. Cadwell Park, which is his home round next up, where he took his first ever win a few years ago. And Silverstone, where, of course, he won at the start of last year um, when he beat Shaky Byrne in that final lap battle at the opening round. So there's every reason why Hickman can just strengthen his position the next two rounds if he gets it right. And there's every reason why he, he can just consolidate that top six spot. I mean, he maybe even go into the showdown with a few more podium credits to his name. Um, yeah, it's amazing very helpful. as it sounds. Um, completing the podium in races one and two, a double podium for Jake Dixon. And um, he didn't quite cash in after his double at Knock Hill. He had a solid enough weekend at Snetterton, but not quite as strong at Brands Hatch. Kind of fell off the radar there. Um, but once again, Dre, Jake Dixon showing that when he and that Kawasaki click, they're a match for anyone. Yeah, and a very nice 36-point double podium haul for the weekend for Jake Dixon, which is it's now put him back in the mix for a showdown spot. I was worried that that Dixon's double earlier in the year was a bit of a flash-in-the-pan moment, and it wasn't quite enough to really... I was like, okay, he's had the one big weekend, but okay, title? Probably not. Um, but the way it's going right now, he's got a few extra podium credits to get. He's now up to, I think, what, 13, 14 podium credits now for the season? And, and if, yeah, 14, if he can, yeah. Yeah, if you now look at him, if he can get in the top six, he's going to have quite an advantage over some of the guys in the shadow because he's had those spontaneous, really big results, and it's now... It's now working out quite nicely because he just needs to find a way to, to reel in those 18 points to get him over the line and get him into the showdown spot. It looks like Dixon, um, he's going to be in that awkward spot where he's probably a bit too good um, for the paperweight chase, but might not quite be good enough to get into what is a really loaded top seven guys trying to get in um, for the showdown spot right now. It is. I mean, as this season has continued... Um, it's looked more like as if Shaky Burn is just going to prove too strong for them and just stretch away. But um, no offence to Shaky, but this weekend, Dre, was kind of what BSB and what we needed um, just to see his wings clipped a bit. Because we all thought, given how well he's gone there in the past, and Shaky himself said that Thruxton, hey, Thruxton's probably going to be my strongest round on the calendar this season, never really materialised, did it? No, and uh, you know, and a, a base. It, well, it was not a good weekend for Shaky. I mean, fourth is is below Shaky standards. He's he's going to be leaving this weekend without any extra podium credits. And in race two, he tried a little bit too hard, and as a result, basically came into the pits three laps from the finish of an unrideable bike. Um, so that's been you know an unfortunate weekend for Shaky, but. 
from a neutral standpoint, yeah, let's be real with each other here. This was good for the championship. Look, I'm not going to pretend like this wasn't. It, it was It was really good for the title chase. It's, it's brought everybody in a little bit now. Like, Shaky's not going to run away with this, especially in terms of podium credits now, unless he probably wins four of the last five or something, which, given Shaky, wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> but um, the way it's going right now, yeah, it's, it's bunched everybody back up a little bit, and it's opened the door for Dixon and Inden as well to get into the showdown and stuff, because a lot of the midfield picked up a few extra points this weekend. They, they might not have gotten if Shaky was involved. So, yeah, overall, it's bunched the pack up a bit, and I have no complaints over that at all. No, not at all. I mean, I, I stand to be corrected because I know Shaky goes well around Cadwell but it's not necessarily the kind of circuit which the Ducati is going to be able to stretch its legs around there it's pretty tight and uh, pretty narrow so there's every reason to suggest that he won't necessarily dominate there either I mean Silverstone is obviously being a Grand Prix circuit it's big and wide and open so they'll probably go well there um, but but yeah there's, there's every reason to suggest that unlike in previous years we might actually start the showdown with six guys all with a realistic shot at it um, with no one out and ahead with a dominant podium credits lead. If the showdown were to start now, Shaky Byrne would start it with a 9-point lead over Leon Haslam and a 16-point lead over Josh Brooks. He would be 16 points ahead of Jake Dixon, but at the moment Dixon isn't in the top six, so wouldn't be eligible. Um, but at the moment, Peter Hickman now has eight podium points, so he'd be within a race win of the lead. He'd be 22 points back. Um, and uh, Jason O'Halloran's only got the three points, so he'd be 27 back. Um, but normally, Dre... We start the showdown with one guy with a pretty healthy advantage, or we start the showdown with a couple of guys out of it before we even start. Um, because usually, from memory, we've got riders with close to 50 podium points by the time we start it. Um, probably, right. probably not going to be the case this year, partly down to riders getting injured. Shaky started injured, Haslam had his injury break, and now Mossy's having one. But in a way, it's doing a good job of ensuring that when the showdown does start, no one's going to have got away with it. No, no one's going to run away with this one, right? The way the way it's going right now, um, you're going to have a bunch of guys in the teens and a bunch of guys maybe in the in the low twenties, maybe early thirties at a push for podium credits um, going into this. And yeah, absolutely, it's going it's going to bunch everybody up a little bit. And you know, we've had we've been critical of the showdown format in the past on this show in previous iterations, and we've been critical of that. But I will openly say it works when the field is this close, and it is certainly working on this occasion. Because you look at the showdown right now, there are five different manufacturers in the showdown, and that is awesome for BSB in in general. And we've got some quality riders fighting for six spots and BSB has never looked brighter than it has right now and I know guys have been injured and it's, maybe it's not a true reflection of form for the season because again three of the top four have had significant injury you know miss, uh, people significant races missed through injury and other guys have had their own struggles like Iden as well as another guy that probably should be in the top six but isn't because of injury concerns but it's, it's, it's working. It's bringing the field in and it, it, there is genuine intrigue where I don't know where I think four of the showdowns were to stood up for grabs with five races to go with Hickman, Mossy, Brooks and O'Hara and on the, on the bubble with Dixon and Iden just outside. Um, so the way it's going right now, that can make it very interesting as to who, who finishes where and who gets the podium credits to finish where as well. Yeah, we think yeah. Ellen Haslam's fairly safe in a showdown spot. He's, yeah. second, he's second in the championship at the moment on 184 which means he's got a 48-point cushion over Jake Dixon in seventh, um, which means that Haslam's got five races, two rounds, um, with the two races at Cadwell and the three at Silverstone to try and find a bit of race-winning form again. And 
albeit Thruxton, he did get back on the podium again, a third in race two. Um, but he, that wouldn't have been a podium if Josh Brooks had stayed on the bike, it has to be said. And he got Christian Iden uh, on the final lap to finish in fourth. But it has to be said, Dre, it was another weekend where JG Spivak Kawasaki did not look like winning a race. No, it didn't. And they've not looked like they've been able to win a race for some time now. Haslam was 11 seconds off the win in race one, and it was 6.9 off it. It's like, I could put it around. 11 seconds off in race two and 6.9 in race one. Yeah, race so, yeah, one had a bit long safety car period in it. Indeed. So, yeah, again, Kawasaki probably about half a second away from where they really want to be right now. And again, they've, they started the season very strong, but as the season has gone on, Shaky's got got the grip of the Ducati and you know it looks like Josh Brooks now might be the guy to beat in terms of sheer overall pace on the Yamaha so the way it's going right now Kawasaki might be third best and with guys like Hickman that just refuse to budge under all the circumstances like that like it's going to be hard for Kawasaki I mean we talk about Mossy his spot might be at risk. There is no guarantee Mossy comes back to Silverstone and automatically just waltzes his way back into the top six if he gets pushed out. That, that is no guarantee the way speed fit have been racing right now. They need they need a bit more. They need to find something on that bike and quickly. Yeah, <laughs> right. It might give Luke Mossy a chance to defend the Riders' Cup that he won last year. Uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, I don't think he you know what that really is, son yeah, of me. Don't think he particularly wants to defend it. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the way it's going, he might end up doing so. Um you mentioned the Kawasaki and the fact that it's trailing perhaps the Ducati and the Yamaha at the moment. And of course, the BMW of Peter Hickman has to be considered in there as well, as does the BMW of Christian Iden, um, who had a great weekend, as did the Honda of Jason O'Halloran. That's another different manufacturer. Both yep. had pretty good weekends, but if anything, their showdown spots, have, their chances have receded slightly. It's very weird how this has all played out because a couple of big guys have had really big runs in, in recent times. And again, like you said, like O'Halloran had a good weekend, but, you know, Hickman had a fantastic weekend. And that's the problem is that there's right now, like they, they, they can't gain enough of an advantage to make their spots really secure. Brooks should have had 45, maybe 50 points. He only took 25 home. I had around a sixth and a fifth instead, and again, it could have, it was a little bit on the benefit of Brooks falling from the front in race two. Again, like Dixon had, had two podiums, one of them he probably wouldn't have gotten if it wasn't for Brooks falling in race two. So again, it's like no one is standing out right now. A lot of guys are all roughly on the same sort of score. Someone else in that in that position of three, four, five, six, seven, and eight needs to have another Hickman-like weekend where they can bring home 30 to 40 points, and that might swing it in their favour again. So the way it's going right now, this is this is up for debate right now, and it's it's it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely fascinating the next two rounds. Shaky Bone leads the championship then on 203 points. He's 19 ahead of Leon Haslam on 184. Then it gets interesting. Reminder, only the top six qualify for the championship showdown at the end of the season. Third is Peter Hickman on 164. Mossy's fourth on 161. Brooks is fifth on 154, as is O'Halloran. He's sixth on 154. Then comes Jake Dixon on 136 and Christian Iden on 134. So 30 points covers six riders, only four of which will get in to the showdown at the end of the season. I think one thing we can say, though, Dre, um, with I make this 76 points, uh, 66 points to make up, I think we can pretty much call time on James Ellison's title hopes. Yeah, exactly. So it's a shame. Um, we, we knew Ellison was was always going to be a, a a a long task to get him back in. Pretty much the first weekend where that Nakamura Yamaha wasn't competitive. 
Indeed, yeah, the McCann's MR just wasn't there this weekend for Ellison, and it was a real shame. It's just not worked out for him on this occasion, and that probably is the end of Ellison's real title chance on this one, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, maybe next year McCann's will, will have a bit more resources to get the best out of that bike, but this year, just from the start, which really wasn't Ellison's year, despite, again, showing great pace at times. Just on this occasion, just not quite enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite enough for him. Um, we end our roundup of the uh, Thruxton weekend with uh, some sad news, unfortunately, from the Pirelli National Superstock <laughs> 1000 Championship, which costs a support class to British superbikes, um, uh, where there was an accident um, between uh, Mark Fincham and Jim Walker. Um, Fincham on the number 903, Mark Fincham on the num- uh, Jim Walker, sorry, on the number 90. Um, in that Superstock 1000 race. Unfortunately, Mark Fincham succumbed to his injuries um, whilst being treated after that accident um, at Thruxton. He lost his life on Sunday. Our thoughts are with his family and friends. Continuing here on Bike Live, uh, let's bring you some of the news from the past week and let's first head back to Bruno and the post-race test that took place after the Czech Republic Grand Prix, and um, an important test for a couple of teams in particular. First of all, Yamaha, um, who we saw testing their new aero fairing. Now, Dre, it didn't quite scare as many small children as the new aero fairing on the Ducati did um, last weekend. Um, we we had to mention that, the, the state of the new uh, fairing on Jorge Lorenzo's Ducati, um, which was debuted with um, a great amount of... Um, sort of showbiz and um, theatre on Friday when they unveiled it. Um, but Yamaha <laughs> unveiling theirs. And um, it, it's, it is interesting, isn't it, how this uh, yeah. this bang on, ban on winglets was brought in at the end of last year, coming into this year. And uh, the teams are coming up with more and more creative ways of uh, circling their way around it. I saw him coming home from work on Friday and I was like, what is that on, 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 on that Ducati? Um it's like someone had just stacked three hammerhead sharks on the front of the bike and just had done with it. Um, very peculiar. But um, on top of that, I mean, the LR1, yeah, a bit more possible, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I don't like to engage in debates about how they look because it's ultimately very subjective. And, you know, it's it, they're prototypes. It's, what, it's, it's kind of what they're meant to be doing. They're meant to be experimenting and they're meant to be, you know, played with just to see what... Just to see how they feel and whatnot. Yeah, so, I suppose a fast bike is a beautiful bike. I suppose, as, yeah, the, exactly. as, as the saying goes. I mean, Valentino Rossi says that he, you know, he, he thinks the aero fairing on the Yamaha will benefit them as the season goes on. It will. There cool. are circuits where it will provide a real benefit. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if this weekend, given the number of straights we have in in, uh, in Austria, will be one of them, um, and where the Yamaha do indeed try and run it this weekend. Um, Andre Dovizioso also got his first taste of the aero fairing on the Ducati. He ran, didn't run it at all in the race weekend. Only Lorenzo got that as the de facto number one rider, even if he's not in the points. Um, but in terms of status, in terms of wages, Lorenzo is the number one at Ducati. Uh, so he got the new pieces. Um, but Dovizioso got them in the post-race test and will presumably have them if he decides it's quicker in Austria this weekend. Um, rider signing news, and we've um, sort of teased these earlier on in the show. Uh, Moto3 news, and uh, we've already told you that Joan Mir is moving up to Moto2. He's joining the Estrada Galicia Mark VDS team, which leaves a spot open at Leopard. The Leopard team have decided to fill it with uh, Enea Bastianini, which if he'd made that signing a year ago, we'd be saying, hey, that's a great pick. Now, we're not so sure. Yeah, Bastianini struggling in 10th in the championship right now, and not really... Um 
showing any real sign of progression from the last two years in Moto3. He's just kind of become a bit stagnant. He was the price picking the paddock when he was at Grassini a couple of years ago. People deliberating whether they wanted to pay the 250,000 euro buyout clause to take him away at that point in time. But uh, the way it's going right now, oof, not not so sure on that. I mean, it's... I think it's a step down from Joanne Mir and Rastini certainly has the one win to his name. He's, he's He's been pretty average this season. So, yeah, the way it's going right now, just all a little bit meh at the moment right now, I guess, for Valeapar. But, like, surely Marcos Ramirez might have been the way to go. Yeah, as I, was, I mean, to they yeah. may, I mean, we'll still wait and see. They may indeed replace Livio Aloy and go with two new riders, which may open a spot for Ramirez. Um, but I, I was certain he was going to go to that team, given he was a Leopard junior rider in the in the CEV Championship. So they've got ties with that rider. Um, and the rider has ties with that team. But, I mean, we'll wait and see. I don't know about you, Dre, but given how well he's gone, I expected him to have been nailed. I was expecting a bidding war, and I was thinking some team would have had him signed up pretty sharpish. Um, right. And I'm amazed. We're, we've reached August, already mid-August, and still no one has picked him up for next year yet. Yeah, um, I'm stunned at that myself. Yeah, personally. I'm stunned at that. I mean, I mean, there's talk that Darren Binder um, is very well liked at Red Bull KTM IO, who, of course, took his older brother Brad to the world title. Um, yep. Darren Binder, who's currently injured, but we shall see. Darren Binder, incidentally, will not be racing this weekend in Austria either because um, he missed the Bruno round through injury where Dennis Foggia replaced him. Uh, he's being replaced by another junior world championship frontrunner uh, in Jaume Massia. Massia, who is an Estrada Galicia junior rider, um, and he may have his eye on the seat that Bastianini has vacated um, in Moto3 for next year. Uh, Moto2 mm-hmm. news, and we uh, told you about this a little bit earlier on. Xavi Vierge has joined the Dynavolt team. Um, for next year, Dynavolt will cost run suitors. They have uh, decided to part ways at the end of the season with Sandro Cortese. Um, and Vieje has joined that team. Bit of a sideways move, as we've uh, suggested earlier in the show. Um, Tech 3, not a proven race-winning motorcycle in Moto2, but then neither is the suitor uh, in recent really. years. So um, we'll have to see if that bike comes on uh, leaps and bounds next year. And Vieje, um, if he's... Um, if that bike is competitive enough, Vierke may well be the guy to uh, get some results on it. But he's another rider who um, I thought would be in demand for next year, as it's proven because another team has signed him. But kind of feel, as you do, whether he could have perhaps uh, aimed a little bit higher than that, whether a stronger team than Dynavolt could have picked him up. Um, because Vierke, I think, is a, a very impressive talent. Um, well, Superbike News, because they return to action in a week's time. Uh, they return uh, next weekend at the Lausitzring in Germany. Um, for the uh, closing stages of their season. And uh, Alex DeAndres will not be there, unfortunately. DeAndres, who had a podium there last year, famously, um, in the uh, wet conditions of race two. Uh, he's been given the flick by the Pedicini Kawasaki team. And Ricardo Russo, who was recently fired by Guandolini Yamaha, has stepped in to replace him. It's about as uninspiring as it sounds. Um, but uh, but that's uh, one change to the uh, rider lineup that you'll see next weekend um, in Germany, as well as the one we told you last week, which we'll see Davide Giuliano step in at Red Bull Honda alongside Stefan Brandl. look ahead to this weekend before we go because it's the uh, uh, Austrian Grand Prix and uh, Red Bull have uh, rented their property out to Ducati for a weekend or at least that's what we think will happen um, this weekend Um, 
and Ducati, quite rightly, Dre, go into this weekend as the heavy favourites. Um, is it as simple as a Ducati will win this one? I mean, they were chased most of the way by Yamaha last year. Yeah, I don't think this is quite as nailed on as they think it is this season, but this this is such a strong Ducati round. I think they will have the legs to to, to do it again this season. I don't. I mean, I mean in, I the context, in the context of the championship, this is one that Davizioso really has to win, surely. Yeah, this is a must-win for Dovi. I, I think if he really, really, if we want to talk about Dovi as a serious, serious threat down the road, a win here would do him the world of good. Um, he is the favourite going into this one, and he so he should be, given it's a Ducati round, and he's been the better of the Ducati so far this season. And yeah, he's been super impressive and all season long. But this 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 is a golden chance for to get back in the race, really, and for Lorenzo just to find himself really after what's been a season of ups and downs and mostly downs. Yeah, especially I mean I'm 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 really keen on um, Jorge Lorenzo this weekend. I, he might be along with Danilo Petrucci. He may well be a value pick this weekend, Lorenzo, because it was one story that really came from the Bruno test on Monday, and Valentino Rossi spoke about it today that. Jorge Lorenzo really did show some good pace in that post-race test. He seemed really happy with the bike. He described the day as one of the most important days of his season, that Bruno test for him to really try and find some good dry weather pace. And he he thinks he found it. Um, So this weekend is going to be a chance to see if he's right. And if he is, this could well be a Lorenzo weekend for him to finally get his first win for Ducati. Absolutely. Daniela Petrucci, who, believe it or not, is or as we speak, is 16-1 to 1 to win this weekend. Um, he is on a GP17, much like Vizioso and Lorenzo. Um, I mean, Friday and Saturday at the moment are scheduled, and uh, you'll know this by the time you hear this, because Friday and Saturday will be t- have already taken place, scheduled to be wet, um, which will definitely play into the hands of Daniela Petrucci um, on that Ducati. Um, but it, yeah, it is interesting because Yamaha were the only team really able to lay a glove on Ducati last year, mm. and they'll be hoping that that's the case again. Because if that's the case again, they may have a chance to make up that ground on Marquez that they lost at Bruno. Indeed, uh, but I think this is going to be a bit more competitive than Ducati think going into this round. I really do. I think Yamaha have got a better all rounder this year. If it stays dry, it'll be very interesting. If it's wet, then Ducati should probably win this at a cakewalk, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, like Marquez has, has already spoken very confidently, saying that it's a much better feeling than the bike compared to this time last year, and they think they'll be closer. Uh, they'll be closer to, to Ducati compared to where they were last year, where Marquez was a distant fifth. Um, so yeah, like there's a lot of hype going into this round. Again, Lorenzo, Lorenzo, as you mentioned, was very, very happy with um, with, with with how he was feeling coming out of Bruno. And it, you, again, like David Emmett, reckon he could be half a second faster, which is huge. Um, it's a, that would put Lorenzo right up there with the very best of them if, if if that if that is a true rumor coming out of the test. So we'll have to wait and we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. But uh, whew. Boy, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, whatever happens, we will be back next week for episode 26 to look back on the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, we promise we won't make any Hills Are Alive jokes next week um, on the show. Um, the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring, MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 all in action this weekend. We will review all of that. Um, between now and then, you'll also be able to see episode, or here, episode 99 of Motorsport 101. Uh, Dre, you, uh, you teased this earlier on. Um, what are the plans for episode 99? Oh, I wouldn't give away my entire hand that quickly, Sodovy. Come on, <laughs> now, you know me too well. But yes, we have episode 
99 coming out next week. And all I will say is, for those that were fans of the initial fantasy draft we did, watch this space. That's all I'll say. Episode 99 next week. <laughs> you will be able to hear that on Thursday of next week um, as we uh, put the final preparations in place for the century, the 100th episode celebration of Motorsport 101, uh, which will be coming um, in around 10 days' time as you listen to this. Um, places you can find us and all the information on all of our future shows can be found on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Our YouTube channel is YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101, where you can find still find our Carlos Munoz interview and weekly show highlights. Um, our website is Motorsport101.net, and if you want to back us financially on Patreon and earn yourself early access to this show and to Motorsport 101, Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. My thank you to Andre Harrison for joining me this week. Um, and join us next week for episode 99 of Motorsport 101 and episode 26 of Bike Live. Until then, from the two of us, it's bye-bye.